step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. It's time for part two of my meditation with Marty Pasco. Marty passed away on May 11th. Uh, I'm very sad about this because he was a good friend. I hope you listen to part one. Part one ended with uh, Marty talking about the golden age, the 40s. And we were talking about, um, I think, Will Eisner in particular and um, uh, the Eisner studio where books were packaged. Um, and uh, people weren't freelancers. They likely worked for a studio. And then the studios were the ones that got the uh, jobs for various characters. You know, Simon and Kirby were technically a studio, and they started off with uh, Captain America, and then they moved on to what was then National and became DC and did such amazing work on the Guardians and the Newsboy Legion and Boy Commandos, or was it Boy Boy's Ranch? I know that. Excuse me, not Boy Commandos. And so many other great books for DC. The Green Arrow run that uh, Simon and Kirby did as well. Um, this is uh, a continuation of uh, that conversation that uh, ended up being almost four hours long. And uh, I'm going to give you um, the last two hunks of it. They were presented over the span of a couple weeks in uh, 2011, uh, but I felt uh, it would be nice to uh, hear these thoughts from Marty because uh, it shows you his breadth of knowledge and, uh, and, and just love, I think, of the, the comic industry and the various um, disciplines he found himself in, in television and animation as well. So uh, here's Marty Pasco, part two, a meditation on today's Word Balloon. A lot of people, I think, characterize some of the creation of these original Golden Age heroes as work for hire, and that wasn't the case. They were shops that were dealing with the publishers, and as you say, it was after the war and then certainly some of these lawsuits where control kind of was wrested to the publishers. Well... I think the, the I think the most accurate way of putting it is to say because it was a lot of the stuff was was work for hire. What there was in the early days, I mean, the early days of the comic book business, just like the early days of, of dramatic radio and, and early days of television, all new media, the internet for that matter, and, and you know, high tech IT, same difference. Um, it's the wild wild west because people are making up the rules as they go along. Yes. So there are no. It takes it takes a mature industry. It takes, you know, ten years on, before policies become standardized and industry-wide practices evolve. So what you actually see in the history of comics is a lot of people making different kinds of deals, and the best deals and the people who did better for themselves were simply the ones 
who were smarter business people. It was Darwinian. Um, Understood. Kirby, Kirby, and Simon and Kirby. Um, Jack, Jack Kirby did not become rich off of Stan Lee's Marvel Comics. You know, Jack had Jack had, was was prosperous well before that even started because yes, you know, because of all the various things that he and Joe Simon had done. They packaged comics not only to timely originally with Captain America, but then went across the street to DC, mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. uh, Boy Commandos and mm-hmm. uh, all the various things that they did for them. Then they created the the romance genre genre sure. for Crestfield and, uh, and, and uh, right. They were they were business people. Yes. Uh, and as I said before, Bob Kane, of course, had his his lawyer father cut a very very good deal for him on Batman, and William Moulton Marston cut a very very good deal on on Wonder Woman. He had the leverage of having been um, a, 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 I don't want to say notorious, but a, a well-known eccentric figure, um, you know, the so-called inventor of the lie detector, uh, yep. uh, a, a columnist and editor for Family Circle magazine. And he got his start in comics by writing a scathing denunciation of comics in Family Circle. And Charlie Gaines took umbrage and set it, made it his personal mission to change the doctor's mind. So they, he took Marston out to lunch. By the time they were done, because these, these were two old opportunists from way back, right? <laughs> well, Marston, Marston merchandised himself. He was, he was a, a publicity hound. He was like, fascinating contradictions. You know, the light, the inventor of the lie detector uses Gillette Blades, you know. I mean, he, he well, he was a doc, he was a Doctor Phil. He really was. Or exactly. I mean, and I mean, honestly, I was going to say in more of our era, Joyce Brothers. But yeah, I mean, like a Doctor Phil, a pop psychologist who made his face known to the public and everything. It was a a publicity hound. He was also he was also a notorious libertine, and <laughs> at a time when there was very little tolerance for alternative living arrangements, he lived. <laughs> He, by all reports, he lived. He's a swinger. He, yes, he was. He lived in, in, in a. He lived in a communal marriage with his his wife and her female lover. Wow. Many of whom wrote Wonder Woman stories. Indeed. And uh, that the only reason he wasn't more widely known and more widely publicized was because people would find out about his unconventional lifestyle and sort of back away from it a little bit. And all throughout the 40s, you know, Shelley Mary used to talk about how, you know, ulcers, ulcers created by the kinky sexual innuendo in Wonder Woman. <laughs> so much so that he went out and he hired a female editor to work under him because he, he, he was missing stuff. And Leibowitz, Jack Leibowitz, who was a very, you know, socially very conservative, and and so nervous about the respectability factor of DC Comics, you know, they they, they prided themselves on being the, the cleanest, most wholesome comics out there. They had an editorial advisory committee. They had Pearl S. Buck, a Nobel laureate, the Good Earth Pearl S. Buck. Yes, yes, she was an advisor. She was a paid advisor to DC Comics, and she was on the masthead in the forties. Wow. Exactly. So the last thing, you know. He, Lee that's like one. having, and if, real quick, that's like having like John Grisham or Tony Morris, uh, Morrison or Absolutely. like 
any any famous uh, author of the day yeah. that's a current bestseller as part of the uh, editorial board of DC and back the, in the forties. And there Go was on. more than one of them. There was there were several uh, from uh, noted psychologists, people from various walks uh, of life who were on the editorial advisory board. And I mean, it's been suggested that basically what that was was they were paid an honorarium for the use of their name. Okay. And very little hands up. But what they did was at the beginning they did write. Uh, White papers, consulting kinds of things, out- outlining guidelines. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. exactly. But there was nobody on a day-to-day basis policing Wonder Woman and would <laughs> sp- spot the B and D. You know, I mean, really, it, 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 you know, just bondage and discipline. There's, there's there's chains. There's people being tied up with ropes. Oh, there's and, a great there's a great um, pinup of, or maybe it was. I think it was a pinup. I think it was one of those kind of faux autograph uh, pinups right. that they would put in comics of Wonder Woman spanking at a candy. Yep, absolutely. and it's just how you doing? <laughs> the only reason I the only reason I don't feel sh- uh, squeamish about talking about this is because you know Les Daniels has covered this ground very thoroughly. Of he, used to, he used to make Levitt's a little uncomfortable, but I mean we had a thing in that I would talk about a lot of this stuff in the, in the manuscript for the DC Vault. And Paul went to the editor and said, you know, should we be talking about it? And the editor, who was also the editor of the Les Daniels books, um, pointed out to Paul that my copy cited Les Daniels. And a lot of the same quotes, I mean, basically what, what, what Steve Cortez, the editor, did was just gave, give me some material that, Len, I mean, that Les hadn't used in the other books so that it would, it would be fresh. But it was all from the same, the same well. And when, when, when Paul discovered that, well, okay, it's already out there, and, you know, he hadn't been um, set upon by the Marston heirs, you know, with pitchforks and, uh, and, and torches, they hadn't stormed the castle, he said, okay, leave it alone. So it's, it's all fairly well documented. But the woman was uh, uh, a young woman by the name of uh, Dorothy Rubicek, who met and married the, one of the top Captain Marvel writers, a guy named Bill Woolfolk. Later went on to become a television writer and very well, a very well-respected novelist. And as Dorothy Woolfolk, she was known as a romance editor about ten years later when she came back to the company. But her first experience at DC was working for for um, uh, All American at the point where All American was merging with DC. You know, and the thing is, Leibowitz wasn't that influential in the beginning because he was he just had a, an ownership stake in the company, but it was really Charlie Gaines's show. But after Charlie died in 1947 and the two companies merged, Leibowitz was then top dog. And just as he was rolling up his sleeves trying to decide how are we going to fix Wonder Woman, Marston had the good grace to die in 1948. And they turned to Bob Kaniger and basically Bob came in and turned Wonder Woman into this kind of romance comic. Yeah, it was like Lois Lane with powers because it's, she really was – exactly. She wanted Steve. She wanted to marry Steve. Yes, a lot of the yes. stories are, how am I going to get Steve to finally marry me? Yes, and the, a lot of the kind of language that was making everybody nervous before with Marston disappeared with the exception of suffering Sappho. But I think <laughs> nobody knows what a sapphic sister is, so we don't have to worry about that. Leaping lesbian. Yes, yes, yes. Now, I don't want to please. I have taken... I have taken some heat in the fan press and, and message boards talking about this stuff because she is a an icon. The character is an icon to the uh, uh, lesbian and gay community. That's fair, and that makes and, sense. Go on. And I have no problem with that. I want to be very, very careful that it is understood that 
my remarks should not be construed as at all, uh, you know, homophobic or disparaging. Completely, because I'm, uh, I'm talking about a historical context here. I, I completely understand and share that uh, caution to anyone who thinks that we are making any, you know, negative comments about the lesbian lifestyle or or one woman's yeah, place but, as an icon to, yeah, the, but to the reality is. At that time, I mean, you're, we're talking here 20 years before Stonewall, so that, you know, you and, and the gay community was deeply closeted. So We are saying this weeks after the gay pride parades have happened all across the country as well, so go on. <laughs> Which is fine. Well, that, the healthier attitude now uh, in, in comics toward a significant segment of the population can only... Um, Reflect well on the comic book industry. Agreed. Agreed. And and frankly, I I think if you look, and we were talking about how much we both are uh, admirers of Gail Simone, I think she has entered characters like that in her books. I think uh, Vandal Savage's daughter. Uh, scandal has made it very clear that you know mm-hmm. she, sure. she, she's a lesbian. Well, and, and I think is a very noble character in the Secret Six. Well, not to toot my own horn, but I was doing. Um, some of that 20 years ago, um, my version of the secret sex, which unlike Gail's was not people in spandex, was closer to a, a, a plain clothes, if you will, superhero team. They yeah, all... it, was almost, it was kind of espionage. It was, I, I remember mm-hmm. that was actually Comics Weekly. Absolutely. Man. Right. Uh, one of those characters was gay. There you go. And one of the stories I was really, really proud of was one in which his, his backstory, the, was the, the last scene was the reveal. Um, and it provoked a lot of comment, but that book was so far below people's radar at that time uh, that you know it's one of those things that shows up as a you know look what we found in the back of the long box kind of uh, uh, website uh, you know blog pages that you, that you see. Um, well, think of the fan. Think of what was the fan press back then in terms of fanzines with their limited circulation. Should anybody have been? Uh, looking back then, right. well, and even and even things like Amazing Heroes and things, it's the internet's a different world. I mean, absolutely, absolutely. I, you, I'm sure you heard about that Superman story that was pulled at the last minute. Maybe you didn't. Uh, in the current continuity, where well, I heard, were, it, well, Rich Johnston did a little thing. There you go. To be a spoof, as I understand it, that the reason it was pulled was because Superman was saving a kitten from a tree, and it turned out that not not to be the case. But it was just, it wasn't pulled, was it? It was just rescheduled. It was, uh. Well, I guess it's rescheduled. We'll see what happens when it turns up. But as I understand Chris, it. Chris, Chris Roberson's last issue is what you're talking Yeah, okay. And maybe, maybe it will still pop up before, uh, George Perez's, uh, new Superman book starts. But it just seems like there's not a lot of time to get it out if it is going to come out before the relaunch takes place. Well, why does it, it's, has anybody got, Put forth a straight answer as to why it was no. canceled at the last minute. No, I think I honestly I think we're left with that confusion of and and that's why and certainly given that it was rich, I'm gonna I'll try and find him in San Diego and, and see if he'll even say uh, what his really real feeling is. But I wonder. I mean, that's the thing. The the cat thing isn't manly enough, so that's the real reason why it sounds flimsy. Well, it, it also does, had it had something to do also, I believe, with Arab characters. Yes. Yeah, that's what I was getting to. Was yeah, that there was a Muslim character, and that there were they were afraid of possible, you know, the way that might be seen in the current political light and everything. So, and and you know, that's either way. I understand, I guess, and we'll see what happens. But that's the thing; they'll say it's going to be scheduled for a later date. 
who knows when it'll show up because mm-hmm. technically that I mean Roberson's story Robertson's stories are all part of Straczynski's grounded story that right. frankly I think most of us reader and publisher alike would like to finish get out of the way and get to some good Superman stories taking no no, no uh, disrespect meant for for Robertson who had a very thankless job of finishing this outline of a very ponderous Straczynski story that frankly I think is half baked and Dude, frankly, uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams covered the same same ground more eloquently with uh, Green Lantern and Green Arrow, you know, right. forty years ago. Well, now uh, that, that's my two cents. Now we're doing <laughs> now we're doing what we inevitably do in these podcasts, John, which is that you ask me a question and an hour later I manage to meander back after digressing. Every tangent is worth it, and I am telling you, I have the fan letters to prove it. Because okay. honestly, you are you are opening doors and and talking about relationships and and the way things worked in a way that I don't think anyone understood. Even those of us that were fortunate enough to read those eighty page giants and hundred page spectaculars and are aware of the material just on face value. So it's okay. It's well, always appreciated. Don't worry. Well, going back <laughs> going back to Superman, which is what I'm the expert on this week. <laughs> You know, as long as that, that you know, they decided, okay, you're going to do the 70s retro book. Okay. Yes. You started to talk about, in response to my comment about about how every generation thinks uh, they're improving upon it, their stuff is better than, as opposed to what I would argue, which is just it's a product of its time and it's different, and that the product of every generation has its strong points and its weak points. You mentioned the post-Weisinger period, the beginning of the Bronze Age, as the beginning of a kind of a sophistication. Well, that had to do, in Superman at least, with Denny O'Neill more than anybody else. The penciler was the same. The character group was the same. There were minor modifications. Julie always, when he would take something over, had to put his stamp on it. Um, Whether... He was asked to do that in the case of Superman or not. I don't know, but it was pretty much a foregone conclusion at that point that Julie would do that. He did that with Batman, and he was asked to do that with Batman. Um, You know, he didn't really know much about Batman, and when he took it over, he made some changes for the good, mostly, uh, just by making the art a little more... Uh, sophisticated, a little bit more naturalistic, and in his own way trying to get the character back to its roots, but because he wasn't a fan and didn't have that whole, uh, you know, wasn't burdened by some image in his head of what he liked as a kid or what he thought, you know, because none of those editors did at that point. Um, What he did was create something new that was a synthesis of a lot of the the best values of the the character up to that point. Um, Reinstating the rogues gallery, uh, adding more deductive beats. But he was also guided by um, um, Wortham in the sense that he was nervous about the relationship between um, Batman and Robin. So Bruce and Dick were you know, stopped calling each other chum quite so much. That was something that, that Lorenzo Semple Jr. picked up from the earlier comics. <laughs> uh, and, he, and, and it was Julie, not the television series, as, as most people think, who created with, I think, John Brunner, Ed Heron, uh, the Aunt Harriet character. Now, Julie said, well, we had to get a woman in there because of the, he said the, because of the, the nervousness. Again, we're going back to how, how has the world changed, right? You know, um, if somebody suggested that, that, that Batman were gay today, it wouldn't necessarily bother anyone. 
But at that time, uh, that was considered unwholesome, and it was sure. you know it was, it was a there was a real nervousness about it. Uh, in fact, uh, 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 Wortham, a direct quote from the from the book Seduction of the Innocent: Batman and Robin is the wish dream of two homosexuals living together. And of course, that gave ulcers to to Jack Leibowitz. So, well, and they would they would even have like little panels of example of right. literally Bruce and Dick sharing a bed. I mean, and that, fully clothed. And, and and very innocently of I mean and that's that's the shameful thing of it that it was very innocent of a, a father and son just you yes, know exactly yeah and I mean really it was that father and son closeness it wasn't an inappropriate relationship but again in the hands of a pop psych, psychiatrist a different pop psychiatrist psychiatrist in Wortham's case yeah suddenly it's a gay thing well Wortham came about as close as he could without actually saying it to repudiating some of his own earlier ideas. And toward the end of his life, he completely reversed himself on comics and actually thought of the, the comics fandom that had grown up by that point uh, as actually a very wholesome, very worthwhile thing. And he conceded toward the end of his life in some interviews with fans. I guess I think this is the late 60s, which, of course, was a very different cultural climate than when he wrote the book 20 years earlier. Right, right that perhaps some of his own issues were being projected into seduction of the innocent. And he also did admit that um, perhaps his uh, methodologies, his case histories. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty kind of calling them methodologies when really all it was was anecdotal. Exactly. 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 Yep. exactly. So he did concede that maybe he could have been a little bit more rigorously um, uh, thorough, cl- clinical, yeah. Um, <laughs> But anyway, the point is that Julie came to that book with this sense of a mandate of having to address so many problems because they were on the verge of canceling the Batman book altogether. Crazy. The sales, Can you imagine? The sales, Can you imagine? Well, they had no sentimentality about it. I mean, you know, it was a novelty in the early 70s when Paul Lev- Levitz argued with Jeanette Conway. You don't want to cancel adventure. You don't want to, you know, you, you don't want to get rid of this type that, or, or detective. This is, these are the flagship titles. They've been around for, you know, it was, and at that point, there was considered to be there was considered to be a value in the fact that these th- these books were numbering in the three hundreds. Sure, sure, certainly. They, they had a, you know, the legacy was important. Uh, times change, but, times and perceptions change, and, and very quickly. Obviously, Batman alone is the equalizer to Marvel's. Wolverine, Spider-Man, yes, you know, yeah. uh, combination, and every every top character. Batman is that lone DC character that, from a sales standpoint today, can can stand among them, yeah. and in a lot of cases above them. Yeah, and in, and so in in addressing all of that, and then two years later, depending upon who you talk to, either in, you know because of what Julie did, or purely coincidentally, this huge hit TV series comes along, but manages to with the campiness, tarnished the image of the character so much so that Julie had to put together a team of people to reinvent it yet again. And by that point, um, Dick Giordano had come over to D.C. and a writer who had been working for Charlton under the pseudonym Sergius O'Shaughnessy (laughs) um, came to D.C. and began writing for Dick and for Julie. Julie was the exact opposite of people like Murray Boltonoff and, and, and Mort Weisinger. Neither one of those guys wanted to be the person to give a writer his first job. Mort, Mort had to because he realized he needed younger talent. So he bought a lot of cover ideas from guys like Jim Shooter and Carrie Bates for many, many years before he actually bought scripts from them. 
But Murray Boltonoff never wanted to be the, the, the person to give a young writer his first shot. He had to wait for somebody else to break him in. Julie was different. Julie, Julie suggested to me that I might want to try my hand writing comics when I was a 16-year-old kid in high school, writing Tim letters. He, Julie planted the idea in my head of, of writing comics, and it never occurred to me before. Uh, so, so Dick shows up. This, I, I recommend this, this guy, Denny O'Neill. That's good enough for Julie. <laughs> and go, 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 go ahead. No, I want to no, know because you're right, and 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 Denny represented a new generation. And you know, I had Denny on uh, an old word balloon back in 2006, and I've I've met him since, and it's been so fun to hear him talk about coming in as really a guy of the hippie generation mm-hmm, sure. to to the you know what you know starch white shirt tie you know Julie Schwartz and everything and yet these guys finding this wonderful rapport right. and and in their in their own differences and and coming up with this new direction so please continue well denny denny was unique among the people coming into the business as writers at that point you know at at, at dc you know dc had a, had this problem where a lot of their older writers they wanted a health plan i'm sure you've heard this story gardner yes. fox Jack, uh, arnold drake yes well i actually arnold arnold didn't get canned he 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 wrote. He continued writing. Murray protected. I see. Him. Oh, okay. But there were a whole bunch of people who wanted to. Uh, Gardner Fox was one of them. John Broom was another one. Um, they wanted a health plan, and at the, this was at the point where Kinney was taking over the company and Carmen was coming in, and basically the attitude was screw him. Kinney, and, which later, and for people who know, oh, Kinney, which later became Warner Brothers. Yes, Warner Communications. I mean, it, yeah, you know, yeah, Kinney, Kinney was kind of the start, and and very early on transitioned into Warner Communications. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, um, uh, Steve Ross, who uh, bought Warner Brothers Seven Arts because the, the studio was falling apart, uh, was the chairman of Kinney National Services, which was a parking lot chain, and which he had built up from a, a chain of uh, uh, funeral homes that his father-in-law owned. Isn't that amazing? Go on. Uh, yeah, and turned and and basically he built uh, Warner Communications and um, which became Time Warner. Exactly, and, and, and is the he, monolith that it is. Well, yes, he died right after the merger with Time, and for a long time afterwards, his business culture, his philosophy obtained. But a lot of the changes you've seen in D.C. over the last 20 years have been a a function of the cultural shift. Uh, Steve Ross's idea was you get your best possible managers and you get out of their way. You let them run their business. As long as they're making their numbers, they can run their business however they see fit. Just send us the checks. That was his attitude. And a lot of the stuff that D.C. was able to do in the first 10 years of Jeanette Kahn's the, the new management team that she put together was due to that philosophy, and then it, and then after the merger it changed, and so you know greater and greater corporate control has been exerted over DC from Burbank to the point that you now have DC Entertainment, which is more of a Burbank entity than a New York one. But in any event, uh, Julie found that Denny understood the medium, understood how to tell stories uh, visually, had a great ear for dialogue. And he wasn't a fan because Julie was still one of those people who was, I call it a self-loathing fan. Julie was a fanboy in science fiction before he became a comic book editor. But he had had it drummed into him throughout his career in comics. Fans are not your readership. If you only sold comics to fans, you'd go out of business. So any of the younger writers like Len Wein, Terry Bates, well, well, Terry was not that much of a fan, but any of us, and I, I had to get the fan speech because I had written letters to him. And I, 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 it took me t- five years to get Julie to understand, no, Julie, you don't have to give that speech to me. I, I get it, really. 
Honestly, I have more of a mass market sensibility than you think. But he would, but he was constantly saying, you know, if Gardner Fox felt the way you did about not creating characters, if you, you didn't get paid extra for it, we wouldn't have the characters that we have today. And people would say, yeah, and Gardner, Gardner Fox wouldn't be scrounging for, for, for food now, you know, but yeah, that's neither here nor there. Um, he was, he really hated the plotting conferences where the first thing you'd have to do is say, nobody knows about that obscure character, and that's not a story, that's just a collection of footnotes explaining what happened to the character. He never had that problem with Denny because Denny came from a completely different place. But Denny was also the most reality-based writer that Julia had ever worked with, so much so that when Denny had to reach outside his comfort zone, I think Denny will admit this, um, he, 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 he was less comfortable, I think is the best, best way of putting it. And although there are a lot of people who were great fans of the stuff that he did when he st- started on Green Lantern before they did the relevant stuff, the, the socially conscious stuff, the soap opera stuff. The, those last, those last few issues of Green Lantern. Um, Jack Sparling was penciling it when, when yes, when when um, when Denny started, and then there was a run that Gill did with Denny, and the the very very last of the old Silver Age Green Lantern that that is the the the, the style or the mood, if you will, the atmosphere that the that the recent feature film is really based on, was a Weaponers of Cord story, and. John Broom came back for that last story, and it was John Broom, Gil Kane, and Joe Jella, the original team who had done Green Lantern. Wow. And it was a little, an interesting coda. And then they, then they picked it up with the Neil Adams thing, the, you know, the, 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 the relevant stories, mm-hmm. uh, the, the following issue. But before that, Denny was trying to do stories in the John Broom style. He was being pushed in that direction by, by Julie. And I always got the impression that Denny did not think of that as his most successful work. By contrast, he was reinventing Batman in the post-camp era, bringing it back to its roots. This is the period in 1969. Neil Adams is starting to do a lot of the covers. He's about a year away from collaborating with Neil on Batman. They're closing down the Batcave. They're, you know, Robin yes. is going off to college. Yeah, that, huts, that that really tearful scene of yep. of uh, yeah, Robin leaving Wayne Manor and uh, yeah, yep. them 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 like you say closing down Wayne Manor right. and moving downtown and the way that, the way that it was in the Batman movie and everything of exactly exactly operating operating in the in right in the middle of downtown right and then Denny starts doing stories with Neil and they they create Race Al Ghul and they do all oh yeah stuff. right okay <laughs> Denny's love for film noir you know detective fiction. And the reality base, you know, he was a former crime reporter. Yes. Um, he drew, he tapped into all of that and drew on that. And because he had successfully reinvigorated Batman, when Mort Weisinger left and Superman was dumped on Julie, Julie's first thought was, well, let's give it to Denny. By an odd coincidence, I was doing a, uh, I was doing a, a fanzine. I was still in high school. I was interviewing Julie Schwartz in his office for my fanzine. The day that Denny walked in and quit Superman. Really? Yep. And I will never forget it. He walked in, he put a Superman script on Julie's desk, and he said, Julie, this is the last one. I just, I can't, I can't do it. Wow. And Julie said, what, why? It's just, I just, it's too fantastic. I can't get my head into that place. So what people think of in retrospect as sophisticated, people who have more of a whimsical sense of fantasy, I don't include myself in them, among them, but some people would say, well, it was kind of moribund. 
It was too reality-based. And it took Carrie Bates returning to the character under Julie and then Elliot Magan and then my contribution and Jerry Conway's following them to reimagine the character in ways that leverage this, the full range of the science fiction. Julie's approach that you remember as more sophisticated was indeed that in the sense that they tried to write around the the tropes uh, that were more of a, a stretch. The coinky dinky thing of, of all this kryptonite. Well, you make the argument, you can make the argument, as I did when I came, came onto Superman, that Julie went too far in the other direction. In any event, because none of the other editors were following what Julie was doing, the Superman books, going back to the whole thing of Carmen, you know, the, the divide and conquer strategy, he gave the Superman family titles to different editors, all of whom sourced the creative for their, those books without much reference to what anybody else was doing. Uh, the Sons of Superman and Batman appeared in World's Finest as edited by Murray Boltonoff in a series of stories that w- would have been called imaginary stories if Mort Weisinger had done them, but weren't. Yes, Bob Haney uh, exactly. is the writer of those stories. Yes, exactly. Super Sons. Exactly. Great stuff. Uh, Rose <laughs> Funny and, stuff. Rose and the Thorn... Um, Love that series. Were Elements in Lois Lane, as edited by uh, Nelson Bridwell. And of all of the editors, Nelson was the only one, because he was a Kirby fan, and because he was the guy in New York who had to process the pages that came in from Kirby in California. He was the only guy who loved the mythology. He was the only one who was using the characters. Julie used Morgan Edge, but only after they had done that story of the Morgan Edge clone, so that the evil Morgan Edge that Kirby had conceived got turned into this morally ambiguous character who wasn't necessarily an out-and-out villain, but was more just like a cranky, pain-in-the-ass boss. Yeah, he was a he was a television Perry White, essentially. Exactly, exactly. But all those other things, the 100 uh, uh, contributed by Kaniger, but the, the stuff that uh, Kirby brought in, the crime gang, the 100, yes. Uh, uh, Inter gang. Inter gang, yes. Dark side, all of those, you know, the, the whole, what later, a, a later generation of writers who had been fans of that stuff, uh, harken back to it. But if you'll recall, when Kirby left, the Kirby, Kirby's fourth world pretty much went with him. Indeed. It was a good five or six years before, and largely it was Mike Carlin's doing, to bring that stuff back into the Superman continuity. And yep, before yep. That, and all of that stuff was a very major part of what Mike was doing with Superman. Uh, and I, I guess Byrne was also an admirer of it as well, John sure. Byrne. But every one, every one of these titles seemed to sort of exist in its own little universe. Now, it was one thing for the Superman books to be in a different universe than Batman. And there are some people who would argue that that was part of DC's charm. As a kid, not as a teenager, but as a young kid, that's why I preferred DC to Marvel. Uh, I wasn't allowed to buy too many comics. I didn't want to have to buy all the Marvel comics in order to understand what was going on. And the sense of a shared universe wasn't really that important. I didn't have a problem with the idea that Batman seemed to be in a slightly different world than Bat- than Superman or Aquaman or any of the other characters. But they would occasionally get together. And you knew they were all in the same world because of the Justice League. But what made them interesting was that they had their own styles, at least to me. You know, because nobody else wrote comics the way... Murray Boltonoff's writers did, or Jack Schiff's writers did, and Aquaman, as drawn by 
Ramona Fraden and written by people like Bill Wolfolk and George Cashton was a, had a very different feel to it. So here you have Denny O'Neill, who's positioned in Julie's mind as the, the guy who can rework things. Okay. And you have Julie, who's coming to Superman, thinking he has a mandate to fix things, and, or at least put his stamp on it. Sure. And so he says, let's depower Superman a little bit. Let's cut his power back. So the whole sand thing storyline is constructed. I love that story. I, I really do. I think it's such an interesting story. Come it's on. very strange. Uh, it is strange, but it's cool. It's Julie, Denny is finding that Superman requires him to go further into that science fiction-y place where he's not entirely comfortable and some of his stuff in, on Justice League, for example, you know, there are those people who, who uh, feel that it doesn't hold up. I'm not one of them, and I don't want to. I'm not going to put words in Denny's mouth and say that he himself has repudiated um, any of that stuff. But what I do know is that later in his career, when it when writers were given more of a free hand um, to choose how to approach things, and editorial controls were not as strong, Denny's natural tastes and inclinations led him away from that kind of stuff. And he's always seemed to be more comfortable, and I don't think he would argue with this, with characters like Daredevil as an editor uh, and Batman who are more reality-based. And the question, and the question and as question. well. His question run says of that. Of course. Um, and so he was finding that to service Superman properly, with the uh, there was that demonic character who was sort of like a, like a pan uh, figure, a, a satyr, if you recall. Yes, yes. Um, and, were, and he had all these different storylines running together. Um, he was being called upon more and more to, to go to that place that he wasn't entirely comfortable with. And I think that's what he was trying to express to Julie when he walked in that day. And I happened to be in the office and said, I, I just, you, you need a different kind of a person to do this kind of stuff. And by that point, Elliot Magan had already got, come into the business and just, he was the sensation. Uh, he, he wrote uh, a, a, a Green Arrow story that uh, when he was still at Brandeis that uh, Neil Adams got a hold of and begged to draw. And that became the backup uh, uh, in, a, in one of those Green Lantern issues. And he was, the, he was the talk of the industry because it was unheard of for somebody to break in over the transom like that. And he followed that up with a Superman script called Must There Be a Superman, which is still today yep. considered a classic. Uh, and so at that point, I think Julie felt comfortable that he knew where the talent pool would come from. Uh, so, and, and, oh, and also, in this period, he's also doing World's Finest, which is team-ups of Superman with a different different character. Yes, the book shifted from Batman to Superman right. as far as right. being the star and, and the crossover star right. and everything. Right, and so he was bringing in a lot of his old characters, Dr. Fate and, uh, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the, the Flash, a lot of the super superheroes from the Justice League that he was familiar with, and he was getting his feet wet with, with, with Superman in that way. And between these two books, Superman and World's Finest, Julie was doing his own version of Superman that was more reality-based than what you would call in retrospect more sophisticated, and his changes, his innovations were being ignored by all the other editors. <laughs> well, I guess, and part of the sophistication that I look at is that it became more of a continuing story in that the news, the GBS newsroom, much like the Daily Planet newsroom, was becoming more and more important to the thing. You'd always have a scene of Steve Lombard screwing with Clark. Well, that was that, was, that was later because Lombard was brought in by Carrie Bates after after. Okay. Then, then okay. Had left and the book. 
Okay, and I guess, all right, so let's talk about those initial changes, like that switch, because I think it, at this point, and, I, and one of the reasons why I'm glad we're talking about this, is let's compare what George Perez and Grant Morrison have in, ahead of them as they reinterpret Superman for the 21st century. And, and, and you know, really with this, this shift to this new continuity, uh, you know, it, it was, I, I'm assuming that the change to television, and granted, you were, you know, a, a fan, but obviously an observer of this point as well. Did you ever talk to him about why did it switch to television? I mean, it was already obviously commonplace by the time you started writing Superman. Oh, abso- but, uh, oh absolutely. I mean, um, I had to be versed in all of this because I was one of a bunch of people who had to download all this stuff to Mario Puzo. Okay. Because <laughs> now there's an experience. I walk in one that one day to deliver a script to Julie, and Carmine comes down the hall. That's how far back that goes. He goes, Pasco. Going to the conference room and say hello to Mario Puzo. Wow. And I, the and man I said, who wrote The Godfather. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I said. I said, I, 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 The Godfather of Mario Puzo? Says, yeah, he's, right, wow. he's writing the Superman movie. And my, of course, my first thought was, yeah, that's the first person I'd think of. Uh, <laughs> sure, yeah. Especially how lurid the actual yeah, Godfather yeah, book yeah. is compared to the great American pie story that Superman's supposed to be. So I walk into the conference room and there is, uh, Alan Asherman, who was at that time an assistant editor, he's now the librarian at DC. But he was the he was the the film maven. Okay. He had, you know all the film cans because we're still talking. You're know, talking 35 millimeter film here at this point. That's how low tech that whole thing was. And I walk <laughs> in there, and he's running episodes of the television series. Right? And I look around, and there's this guy who looks like a slightly more uh, groomed version of Alan Moore, with the shoulder length hair and the beard. And he's wearing a, this sweater that's, like, out at the elbows. And he looks like, you know, he hasn't changed his clothes in about four or five days. And I'm thinking, well, I guess it's true what they say. When you're that rich, you can be that eccentric. I'm, think, I'm thinking this. <laughs> and, and I'm just sitting there, and Carrie Bates is there, and, and we're, we've been told, we've been asked, not getting paid anything for this, by the way. We're just freelancers, right? But we've been invited. Of course, we're all starstruck kids, so we love to do this, to, to have Mario Puzo pick our brains. Well, after about 20 minutes of sitting there in stony silence, Alan changes the reel, and Puzo takes the cigar out of his mouth and says, I get it. It's uh, kind of like a fantasy in contemporary times. And Carrie and I look at each other like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's, that's the most he can say. And, of course, his first drafts of the script were uh, an abomination. Yeah, notoriously ab- abominations, yes. Well, he, this- um, he, at one point, um, Superman says to Luther in his draft, Superman, you can, I mean, Luther, you can kiss my, and he points to the S on his chest. Nice. <laughs> uh, and, of course, Julie is telling me this, and, he, you know, he's, he's making his notes on a Xerox, and he says, this is the first thing it's going to go, you know. <laughs> because Julie had no power over it, but D.C. had, Saul Harrison had the veto power. Okay, and we all knew okay. we all knew Saul and and, and Saul and, and and Carmen, and we all knew that what their sensitivities were. And there was also another scene where Superman sees a bald guy running around down down on the ground, uh, and he flies down and taps him on the shoulder, and the character turns around and he's got a lollipop in his mouth and he says, "Who loves you, baby?" Which was Kojak, Telly Savalas, who was bald at that time, a uh, very popular bald detective on on television, and. I, Wait, now, r- real quick, so, so DC could go to the parent company, Warner Brothers, who's making the movie, and say, look, you don't want this, this, and this out? They actually had... Well, it worked a little bit differently. See, go ahead. Go ahead. Explain. The Salkins were independent producers. 
Right, right, Warner right. Brothers had the distribution deal because they said, basically, you have to set this picture up with us because we own the character if right. you want to do it. And what they had was a first look. And they, ex- they, they had the option to not distribute the movie if they didn't like the way it turned out, which, in point of fact, they did exercise on the Supergirl movie that the Salkins made. TriStar distributed that, not Warner Brothers, because Warner Brothers just passed. Um, uh, so their power ended as far as distribution, not... No, no. What they, oh, what they said was, we don't know the mythology the way you do. So you will have a consulting position. The Salkins told this to no, you. No, Warner, I'm sorry. Warner Brothers said this to the Salkins. Said, okay. We will give you notes from DC. And so essentially what happened was the studio people filtered the notes from, from, from DC to the Salkins. I see. So, and further, and further at, uh, recently, Hero, uh, there was a big film festival called Hero Complex right. in LA. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you happen to hear it, but, and, and they are available. Uh, a lot of the directors were available for Q&A afterwards right. and people smartly recorded podcasts of them. Right. And I've heard Richard Donner talk about how crazy Puzo's script was before. Right. Well, so well, maybe you can shed a little more light on that. Well, that. well Donner, Donner and, and Tom Mankiewicz really rewrote that script from the, the ground up. And Tom Mankiewicz, to give his pedigree, great James Bond writer as well, good friend of Donner's, was brought in to help fix the script I, with Donner. I, or, like, or I should say Donner begged Mankiewicz based on his friend. And either the son or the nephew of Herman Mankiewicz, the co-author of Cid- the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Indeed. And Joseph Mankiewicz, uh, same family, a prestigious yes. pedigree. And Ben Mankiewicz, who is the younger host of Turner Classic Movies, is, exactly I believe, right. Tom's son. I, you're, I believe that is correct. Son, yeah, or, son or nephew. I, 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 don't, I don't know the two, the, the two Mankiewicz brothers and their progeny <laughs> have been uh, major forces in film uh, for a long time. Tom just recently died. Um, yes. And I recall him, and I didn't meet Donner because uh, I was in for a lunch, and Donner was out, out to lunch, but Tom Mankiewicz was around. And uh, what he had to work with was the second script. Puzo did a draft that was on another planet. <laughs> so they then hired... Robert Newton, uh, uh, Robert Benton, who later became a, a director, and David Newman, and they were the guys because they were the guys who wrote the book for "It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman" on Broadway. I see the Broadway musical, right. yes. And Robert Robert Benton went on to become a very uh, a distinguished uh, director, uh, and David Newman um, wrote some other screenplays with his wife Leslie, who was brought in, whom he brought into the Superman project. And, Interesting. Um, for the longest time, they became the go-to people. The Newmans became the go-to people for uh, comic book properties being adapted to film. And there's this long string of credits of movies that never got made um, that they wrote. Uh, a version of Batman, uh, The Spirit, uh, you know, uh, a lot of things. That's interesting because you would think they're certainly based on the success of the first Donner Superman film – that much like um, the success of Brian Singer's X-Men and, uh, and, 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 you know, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, that it ushered in this new era of, of comic-inspired films. And it, well, because the Superman film really didn't. Well, no, because it was a very expensive film to produce. And by the time the film came out, frankly, um, the standards of special effects have been moved so far by industrial light and magic that the, the feeling was there should have been more production value on the screen. At least that's what I recall some people saying at the time. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, okay. Um, 
And there was also a bad taste in the mouth of a lot of people in Hollywood towards towards the Salkins because of the shenanigans with shooting oh, movies yeah. and not telling people, you know. Well, and 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 it happened prior to the Superman films. They did the same thing with the Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers. Exactly. Films. So it was a, clearly a case of fool me once, shame on you; fool me twice, shame on me. So I think a lot of people were kind of embarrassed that they got suckered into that. And, and Selkin's grandfather, because we're talking about the the, uh, the parentage of some of these people, right. his grandfather was a, a wonderful, uh, very well-renowned uh, European producer, yep. and and really did a lot of great classic films. And am I right? The Third Man wasn't wasn't the, wasn't the elder Selkin involved with? I'm not sure about that. I I think of that as as uh, Alex Corda. Uh, oh, uh, that's right. You're right. Alex Corda and Carol Reed. Of course right. it is. Uh, of course, I don't know. You're right. He does have um, a prestigious pedigree in European film, but I, I, I'm not familiar with the credits. But it is, but it is kind of like, yeah, you know, like the grandson kind of banking on grandpa's name and everything coming in, and, and frankly, you know, his first instinct is to do schlock. I mean, I, you know, Donner explained it was going to be shot in Italy, and, right. uh, and much more of a, and as you say, even the Puzo's script, a much more campy script than right. what Donner eventually made with Mankiewicz's help. Well. Well, it, it, it was a negotiated credit, so the real, I mean, as far as, as a writer, you know, I look at it, because I read all the drafts, and I would say, you know, okay. he lost the negotiation, where he was, he knew going in that he was just going to be uh, given a script actor's credit. His credit on the film is script consultant Tom Mankiewicz, and I, I believe the credits, the credits on, the screenwriting credits on the finished product are Newman and Benton. I think Benton's out of it, in fact. I think it's David and Leslie Newman and, okay. and, uh, and, and Mario Puzo. But there's not a word of any of their stuff left. It's all Tom Mankiewicz. Wow. I, remember the, I remember seeing the final shooting script, and, and every, every single revision page, and they were all revised, had uh, TM in the upper right corner. And what that meant was he, by, by the time he got done, he had completely rewritten every scene. Wow. And the only things that he did not, Change completely because Pierre Spengler, the producer who wasn't a Salkin on the film, liked them, were the stuff that plays uh, the most campy. Uh, Mr. Luthor and the whole, the Miss Teschmacher stuff. <laughs> where, where it, it, you know, the tone shift is so dramatic. That's a, a, a completely different movie. You know, you're watching something that's this naturalistic action adventure and suddenly takes this left hand turn into, into farce and you're sitting there going, whoa, wait, wait a minute, where did that come from? You know, um, because that is the real big change from then to today. In the 70s and the late 70s and 80s, the mindset was still camp. Certainly. The Batman TV show still was the template in everybody's head. Um, and that was the problem with, with the first Batman franchise, feature franchise, why it ultimately went aground. Burton was coming to this material in a completely different way. And when they brought in, but when they brought in Schumacher, Yes. Schumacher wasn't seeing it as a film franchise based on a comic book. Schumacher was seeing it as a movie like the version of the Beverly Hillbillies that had, uh, you know, Jim Barney and, and Cloris Leachman right. in it. He was seeing it as a feature film homage to a television series. And Marty, were you, were you involved with those Schumacher films in terms of uh, being a liaison no, or anything no, like no, that? No, no, no. That, that, okay. that was all done before my role. Uh, because, because something that came out in Schumacher, I've heard Schumacher interviewed on, I think, uh, one of our mutually favorite shows, Fresh Air, mm -hmm. and he talked about those films. He said that a lot of that campiness was forced upon him 
because every day, especially during the final film, now he did the last two. Right. He did Batman Forever and he did Batman and Robin. I think he did the last three, didn't he? Uh, or am I, you know, the first two were done by, by Burton. Well, there were four. Am I right? Is was there a fifth one? It was. It was uh, the two Burton films. Then there was, uh, which were both uh, key. Batman Forever. Val- and then, that, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah, Val, Val, Kilmer, Val Kilmer did the one, and George Clooney did the one. So, on those last two films, when it was Schumacher, he said, especially during Batman and Robin, because Batman Forever definitely was silly, and it certainly didn't hurt that Jim Carrey was in there. Right. Kind of like Superman 3, you were almost obligated right. to do comedy having a comedian in the film. But then, um, in, in Batman and Robin, he said that uh, he, would, he would be working, and he would be called from the set, and suddenly they would present him with a toy that was already set for production, and said, we need a scene with this thing in it. And, and it was that kind of, like, constant barrage of, we need, we need this character in there because we're planning a toy run with this. And it really, he says it, it kind of left, you know, his hands. And I personally think, like I said, that Batman Forever is slightly better than uh, uh, certainly the Clooney film, which, frankly, I have yet to watch completely well, that's an- because it is so bad. Well, I... <laughs> It's an entire film shot through a blue filter, and you can't tell what's going on in most of the case, you know. And, the, you know, I blame Akiva Goldsman, I mean, for stuff like... Understood. For stuff like, what killed the dinosaurs, Batman, the eyes Yeah. You know, and I... McBain, I, McBain from The Simpsons is essentially right. that same, right. you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and there it's purposely... But yeah, Arnold is guilty of saying all those sad lines, unfortunately, in that Batman and Robin movie. Yeah, I, I used to meet I you. I blame the writer, and I also... You know, I, I blame... Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Schumacher. For okay. shooting it with, you know, pauses between dialogue like you could drive a truck through. It's like, what is this? Harold Pinter does Batman? I, <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> And I don't think that argument really washes because because okay. Burden had to contend with that also. It was a famous uh, story uh, when Michael Keaton was making the talk show circuit about how he, his biggest frustration was they would do a scene and they would shoot it and then he'd have to go back and reshoot, reshoot the scene because they forgot to put the box of Batman cereal on the table. And, of course, he's making a joke because there is no such shot in the film. But right. it's his way of saying that there was that kind of, of interference um, what Warner Brothers was at pains to do, I think, was maximize the licensing revenue because they, they had a bad experience with the second Batman film. The first one took a lot of people by surprise as being dark. A lot of people thought it was inappropriate for kids. And I think Burton's reaction was sort of, well, I don't know what you mean by inappropriate, but I, I didn't set out to make a kid's movie. There you go. But Warner Brothers Consumer Products was concerned about all of those, you know, Batman Happy Meals that they weren't able to to set up. Sure, sure. And that was because that's where the money is. That's what every, that's what every comic fan has oh, to sure. be reminded of. It's the underoos and the bed sheets and the the kids' paper plates. That's what keeps these characters going. And it was also the politics of the place too, because Dan Romanelli, who, who built up um, the Consumer Products thing from what had used had been Licensing Corporation America, Licensing Corporation of America, way back in the distant past. Um, was it was very very powerful, and the, th- the thinking was um, that you know it's not about the film. The film is just one element in a marketing campaign. Yes, um, and to some extent that thinking does survive today. But there is a feeling that you can't neglect to make um, the best possible movie you can make uh, for the money uh, in the process. So I th- I think what happened on those two Schumacher pictures is they were all too willing to go lighter. 
to make it more kid-friendly and less threatening um, uh, for the purpose of being able to make more licensing deals. And that inevitably, when you take this stuff, um, particularly Batman, and move it in that direction, it's like people don't know how to do it except in a campy way. And in fact, sure. at the end of the Superman, the, fir- the, the Superman franchise, the, the Christopher Reeve franchise, you had a lot of that in the, when Menachem and Yoram, Golan and Globus, uh, the, the Israeli uh, producers who later went on to savage a lot of the Marvel stuff, making movies that people barely see. Canon films? Yes, of them? course. Yes. Indeed. Yes. So the last Superman film, if you look at the credits, it's a Canon production distributed through Warner Brothers. Yes, sir. And, Absolutely. And it looks it. Yeah, exactly, unfortunately. And, I, and, I, and of course, I, I've heard that Chris, Christopher Reeve only showed up to do it because he had written the story. He had an, a vision of something he wanted to say that sort of got muddled along the way. But uh, uh, in, in, in any event, um, I don't know how we got off into the whole thing about, about the film. Well, but, but Mankiewicz did, did rewrite that, that script, you know, completely. And... Uh, There was a point in here somewhere, but once again, I've lost it. (laughs) No, well, no, we well, it's okay because you you talked about uh, you were going back to when you were consulting uh, with Puzo on that original script too, and that's where we went down that. Yeah, Barney, I'm telling you, they all love it. Don't worry. He he was filled with questions of why various things were done. See, that was the thing. Ah, ah, I remember now. Julie's innovations in television. And you're saying, because I'm, I'm not all that versed in what, what's coming up, they're, they're returning Superman to, I mean, Clark Kent to television? Oh, no, oh, no, 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 not at all. I, I, what I'm saying is, is you, I think every, every era, we, we, it's funny, we've kind of, in our own way, talked about what, what I want to without me asking, and that is that every era there's been a necessity to change things, whether it's uh, aesthetically from an art standpoint or, or uh, on the writing side. And I want to talk about the old days in a second, but... There had to be a way to break off, and as you said yourself, everyone who came in to do a new version of Superman felt they had to update it in some way and bring the level of current sophistication to an old idea. Well, Julie had this idea in his head that nobody read newspapers anymore, and, and kids couldn't relate to newspapers, but they could, when you talk about a newsman on television, that made sense. So we were, stu- we were stuck with the television conceit, but in terms of the mechanics of the story, it was much, much more difficult. It was a lot easier for Clark Kent to pull off the double identity and all the other tropes, you know, the, the, whether it's a storeroom or whatever, all of those old cliches. When there wasn't a camera on it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you know what my biggest problem was? And I only got a chance to do this in the syndicated strip, but not in the stuff for Julie. One of the biggest hits on television in the late 70s was Lou Grant. Yes, indeed. Which gave the audience a very realistically based environment for, of a newspaper, very you know, heavily reality-based, a heavily accurate vision yep. of what life in a metropolitan newspaper was like. And I kept going to Julia saying, why aren't we doing Lou Grant in spandex? I know, you know, it's like, you know, screw, well, your screw the TV, <laughs> you know. But we had, a man, we had a mandate from the Tribune Syndicate to treat Superman not as a newspaper person, but as, I mean, not as a... A TV person, but as a newspaper person in the syndicate, okay. strip, because it was what a newspaper syndicated strip. So who was drawing your strip back then? Very clearly, it was George George Tuska, which was Great George Tuska, yes, which was a, an interesting experience. Um, but George was working kind of fast. And the funny funny story about George: um, George would do two strips on a, on an artboard, okay, 
you know, so the you know, Monday would be across the top and Tuesday would be across the bottom. George, for some reason, he would pencil the bottom strip without lifting his eyes three inches to the strip above. <laughs> So Clark Kent would run into an alley on Monday wearing a polka dot tie and come out of the alley on Tuesday with a check tie. Interesting. And there were a lot of he had he was not a group book guy. So we had a lot of the you know, it looked like the old Super Friends cartoons a lot. You know, Batman would have Superman's belt, that kind of thing. Okay. Would have <laughs> would have been fine, except the anchor was Vinnie Coletta. Oh, no. And Vinny was notorious for, if he didn't want to ink it, he'd erase it. Sure. You know. So you couldn't get George to make any changes because he'd say, ah, Vinny's not going to ink it anyway. <laughs> wow. And it finally got to the point where poor Joe Orlando, who was the editor was after Julie, was having a heart attack practically because, you know, and, and there was actually a sequence in which Superman fell off a yacht. Uh, uh, Batman. Bruce Wayne. The idea was he threw himself all overboard to change costume and come back up. Don't don't look at me. I didn't come up with this stuff. Okay. All right. Bruce Wayne falls off a yacht and climbs aboard a dinghy. I'm kidding you not. And if it was two separate pages, I could understand that. But it was, you know, in a piece of art, literally six inches below <laughs> the previous day's daily, you know. So that was that was a very time consuming project. <laughs> and that was that was the world's greatest superheroes yeah. comic strip. Did that become did that become the Superman strip later or the other way around or and that was a case of the damage was already done because nobody would listen to me. Um, I was hired as the writer for this thing. And I kept telling them, guys, this is structurally impossible. Of course, I had no credibility because I'd never written, uh, you know, a comic strip before. But I had some really excellent teachers. I was talking to Joe Orlando, who ultimately became took over the thing because he was doing Little Orphan Annie. Uh, I, I, I I was steered you know, Rick Marshall, who's an expert on um, uh, on syndicated strips, recommended a whole bunch of things that I should look at to Mike Gold. Mike passed it along to me. So I mean, I was steeping myself in the pacing. Because there's a real art to that stuff. Nobody knows this anymore because, you know, newspaper strips practically don't exist anymore. Right. Um, but what you had... Adventure strips, certainly. Right. Well, what you had to do in, at, at that time was you had to tell the story from Monday through Friday. You couldn't advance the story too much on Saturday because most, most papers didn't publish a Saturday edition. Yep. And you had to continue the story on Sunday in color, advance the story so that there was enough so that there was something worthwhile to look at in color. But not so much so that the readers of newspapers that didn't publish Sunday editions wouldn't know what was going on the following Monday. So it was this incredible – and then on the Sunday pages themselves, you had to write the Sunday pages three different ways because there was what was called the drop strip because there were two different formats for running the Sunday page, the tabloid size and the non-tabloid size, which is why in Sunday strips – I don't know, you know, if this is so much true of humor strips, but sometimes you'll see some version of a strip in one city will have a, a logo in a, like a splash panel. Yes. But in other papers, it's just a typewritten header. Right. And, and it starts, that, that's, well, that's called the drop strip. And you couldn't, you couldn't use it as filler. It, you had to have something in there that was, that was an illusion of moving the story forward. 
So it was it was like a huge time consuming thing because you were writing this jigsaw puzzle and you know, going in four five different ways. And on top of this, they wanted to put six leading characters. I said, Are you people crazy? You can't do that Justice League in and that was what that was what they sold, Trip News, with the Justice League. Right. Why? Because in the world of a syndicated newspaper back in that day, once something had died, it was dead. Didn't matter that it had been ten years earlier. Superman hadn't been in newspapers since 1966. This was 1976. Didn't matter. It failed once. It'll fail again. Batman. Wow. Batman had been in the syndicated strips. Not I can't. The sales force said we can't sell it. It failed once. So the only thing that they would take was the world's greatest superhero. So we started out with this very very convoluted thing. Uh, the, the stories were very very difficult to follow. Very difficult to write because who. Who were the who were the heroes? It was six heroes, as you say. Yeah. So Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. I'm going to imagine Superman, ba- Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and Flash. And okay, those four. Then there was a rotating fifth spot. Okay, and, okay. And Julie, what, what, to the extent that Julie was the editor, you, you were using the Justice League characters who had their own convoluted backstory. I kept saying, let's just use something simpler and iconographic. But no, we had to have Vandal Savage. We had to have Doctor Destiny. We had to have these other all these other characters. And it sort of it started out strong, and but then, then it started to lose newspapers. And, but then a very interesting thing happened: the Superman movie came along, and by that point, Joe Orlando was editing it, and we he and I were on the same page. It was it's a no brainer. We'll call it the world's greatest superheroes in the in the logo in the drop strip, but for all intents and purposes, it will be a Superman strip. And that's what it was for the rest of its run. All how many, how many, how many stories did you manage to get I, through I did about, in both incarnations? I think I did about three or four continuities. The, first, okay. the fourth one was a prankster story. It was the first one that was solely Superman. And in point of fact, as we as we predicted, many of the newspapers carrying this strip that didn't run um, the Sunday page where they had the super, uh, world's greatest superheroes logo on it just called it Superman. Because they had also they doctored the logo so that it said "World's Greatest Superheroes" in smaller type, featuring in much bigger type Superman. Sure, now, the sure. Superman movie was huge. The syndicated strip went through the roof, and I had one of the I had a rare participation deal on that. I was making royalties long before they were paying royalties in comics, and that got me out to California, and that subsidized my first year uh, in L.A. writing spec scripts and, and, and breaking into television. It w- couldn't wow. couldn't have done it without that. But it was it was nuts. But Joe also got the idea of, yeah, let's play it like a real newspaper. So instead of having a, a silly office, Perry White had a fishbowl, you know, and there was a city room. Clark Kent didn't have his own office. And we tried to play it as re- – and we, we tried to make the various roles of the various characters on the Daily Planet analogous to actual roles in a newspaper um, and tried to keep it as contemporary as possible. What uh, – what we were short of was the introduction of computer terminals because that that didn't start until after I'd left left the strip. But we we got a lot of positive feedback from from the various newspaper markets. Uh, That's really cool. Well, go on, yeah, go on, yeah. You know, I mean, so we had to download to to Puzo all of these changes that Julie had made, and the studio decided to, as I say, to filter our comments, and there were certain things that. The, the studio just didn't want to do. The studio felt that certain things about Superman were, although they didn't have the word iconographic at, the, at that time, 
They felt there was so much a part of you know Superman in the public imagination that it would be too jarring to show it in the movie screen. And, and of course, the comic book people would say, "Yeah, but we're doing it in the comics," and rightly so. Warner Brothers' attitude was, "Well, nobody really reads your comic books." The way we, in which we were able to exert a little bit more influence, not that that was necessarily the goal, because we were just trying to help. Uh, Chris Reeve used to make the talk show circuit when he was promoting the film, talking about how you can, you can go to DC Comics and they can tell you, they can show you on a star map where Krypton is. They can tell you how to get to Krypton. And it was picked up in the popular press as being pejorative, but I don't think Chris really meant it that way, because we were able to help him with a lot of stuff. Nelson Bridwell had come up with a conceit that I, I communicated to Chris. I was one of the people talking to him who had an acting background, and I, I had some of the sense of the kind of hooks he was looking for. And he was looking for ways to differentiate Clark from Superman. And I said, well, Clark is shorter than Superman. And he said, what do you mean? He said, Kent deliberately slouches to create the impression that he's not as tall as Superman. And he's furiously scribbling all of this stuff. And to this day, I wonder whether he wasn't, that wasn't responsible for that. There's a great shot in one of the movies where Lois is confronting him and says, you're really Superman, aren't you? And he straightens up before he turns around to face. Yes, in Superman 2, he's, absolutely. He's, great scene. He's, he's, physically, he's Clark Kent, but he's Superman. And it's a, yep. it's a, it's a wonderful scene. So we were able it's, it's a metamorphosis, it really exactly. is. It's a great acting moment, exactly. absolutely. Um, because uh, I and a couple of other people were able to talk to Chris in, in acting terms, talking about how Clark's sphere of movement is more contained. His spine is smaller. And he and because I, I had some sense of the kind of training he had had at Juilliard in acting, he understood what I was talking about. And I think he, he used a lot of that stuff. And to, to their credit, they let him do it. Um, the... But the whole idea of them having to be on the newspaper, that came from the studio. And Kryptonite was a, an integral part of the Lex Luthor-Superman dynamic. And I think DC was unable to talk them out of Miss Teschmacher or, uh, or Otis. <laughs> Let me tell you, I'm glad they didn't talk them out of Miss Teschmacher. Really? Because, Val well, Valerie Perrine, i got to tell you, purely, from, <laughs> purely as, a, as a young adolescent seeing uh, Valerie Perrine, I'm like, okay. she can stay. I, She's all right. I, she was incredible. I hear you. My problem was I kept, <laughs> I, I kept seeing uh, uh, Honey Bruce from Lenny. Oh, sure, of course. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God, Superman's fighting a stripper. Yeah. But <laughs> just, just a stupid joke. Why it's necessary to reinvent things unless there's an absolute technological reason for it um, has, has always eluded me. And I think that was the other thing. Even though the studio was pushing for iconographic things, the production was sort of pushing back. That little joke where he's looking for a place to change oh, and goes past the, the open phone booth. Yep. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of Superman changing in a phone booth at that point was outdated by about 20 years. Ever since they went to glass-walled phone booths, it never made any sense. But it was an, an iconic thing that was so much in the popular imagination that the studio felt that it needed to be addressed. And I remember people at DC saying, oh, just forget about it. Nobody, nobody changed. He doesn't have anything to do with phone booths anymore, you know. And now, I – this is the other thing. I made the conscious choice of doing the uh, retro Superman story as if it was set in the 1970s. So there are no computers. There are no cell phones. And my frustration is that there isn't any text in the book, because there wasn't any room for a text page, that explains that conceit. So I'm thinking some of the younger readers are going to be saying, well, that's bogus. 
He wouldn't even be able to do that. All you have to do is call Lois on her cell. Well, no. Not, <laughs> not, that not by the rules that we were playing by. Yeah. And because the book is being done with modern color and full bleed and glossy stock, and it's, it's a beautiful looking book, but um, it, it, it doesn't visually communicate the conceit. So I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity, John, to explain this, <laughs> because if, as I say, if the younger readers pick it up at all, and I certainly hope that they do, and find the um, the funny story not unpalatable. I mean, comics have been grim and gritty, or taking themselves very, very seriously for a long time, and that was one color that we used to play in in the in the Bronze Age that we don't anymore, which is that Superman could be whimsical occasionally. Sure. When you brought on, I mean, how else do you play, Mister Mixiaspitalik? Um, I mean, I think, I think, uh, who, I, who, I, don't, I don't recall who it was who wrote the Ed Bennis thing where, um, McSespedelec appeared as a figment of the Joker's fevered imagination or, in other words, it was an attempt to take the McSespedelec character and make it dark and grim by, by having, it was the Joker stole some of his magic. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, Bernie and Superman. Yes, 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 of course. Yeah. I remember Ed Bennis was the artist. I forget who wrote it. Maybe it was Jeff Loeb. I was going to say, I think it is Jeff Loeb, okay. yeah. All right. Um, well, even uh, even Graham Morrison recently in Batman R.I.P., one of the last stories bef- uh, during Final Crisis, um, he, Batman was in a drug-induced state, and he saw Batmite. And Batmite right. was speaking exactly. to him. And it exactly. was, yeah, so no, I get it. Absolutely. Right. Right, call me an old fart, if you must. But for me, that always falls into the category of, was this trip really necessary? Or, if you'll for- <laughs> forgive my vulgar language here, it's comics written on the why does a dog lick its testicles school of thinking. <laughs> the answer to that, the punchline in that joke is because it can. <laughs> but the point is, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you need to. And, and so, if someone said to me, okay, let's figure out a way to treat Mr. McSespedlick dark and grim and seriously, my first response is going to be, why? Why do you need to? That character exists to create a certain kind of tone. Did you uh, did you have a chance to read uh, Greg Rucka's Adventures of Superman? Because he, I think, achieved a good balance of telling a realistic story. And Mixius Pitlick was there and was not a figment of the imagination, but was from this other dimension. And it was great because he really brought uh, Mixius Pitlick back to that 40s and 50s uh, baggy pants, kind of, you know. Oh, okay. that, wow. that's a, that's a, that's an interesting recommendation. I mean, as a, and and, as, and he called him a girk the way that uh, the way that he first did, and really was it was an affectionate kind of alien to alien relationship because right. of course Superman's an alien too, and it was like he was kind of a he could see into the future and said McGurk, I can't tell you what's going to happen, but you're about to run into some rough times, hmm. and 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 it unfortunately did lead to a very realistic and serious moment in the story and uh, and it was handled really well because again it was this angel on his shoulder that it's like hey man i know i've had fun with you and i've messed with you in the past but i got to tell you you're you're about to face some tough stuff here interesting interesting I, well I'll, I'll take that uh, as a recommendation i, I know i mean i've got the stuff probably on this long long pile of things i haven't gotten around to reading understood but you know it'll be very interesting to see going forward what they do with superman i i don't don't really have a lot of insight into the direction in which it's going. Um, I will be very curious to see if a broader range of types of stories are in the offing. 
Um, I'm not sure I really have a sense of what the prevailing or preferred tone for superhero comics is now. Um, it's very, very difficult to believe in heroes in the cynical age that we live in. Yet at the same time, you live in an, in an age in which there are so many examples of real-life heroes, but in a very, very specific context. I mean, my daughter and I were having this conversation the other night. Um, she's into the Hunger Games books. Mm-hmm. And the Hunger Games, for your listeners who are not familiar with it, uh, YA, very popular YA series right now, uh, an eagerly waited film is in development. Uh, a post-apocalyptic future in which essentially Christians versus lions kinds of combats, so-called, the so-called Hunger Games, uh, are conducted among young people, and they battle to the death. The fact that you are brooding for people who are forced by circumstance to be killers speaks to the values of the age, the, the, the kind of coarsening or toughening, um, hard... Um, hard-nosedness, if you will, that I wonder isn't a function of our now being, you know, 10, 15 years on from terrorism finally reaching America's shores. Because the the impulse to write those characters that would be informed by what a hero is, was supposed to be when I was first writing heroic fiction, where I would go to as a writer would be the hero is the one who tries to figure out a way to win the game without having to actually kill. And I'm in mind of this because that was always a very uh, important ingredient in Superman. He never took a life. Yep. I'm not aware of that having changed, but in some ways I'm kind of surprised that it hasn't. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but I would think that it would be a natural reflection of the values of our society as they have changed. Uh, and in point of fact, I, I am, up to the time at least, I was the only writer. I'm sure other people have done it since. Um, and, and of course, Byrne had the famous controversial sequence where Superman killed a Kryptonian. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pocket universe story, as, as I recall. Um, I did a story where the whole point of it was, would there be a scenario in which Superman would kill and it would be the morally defensible thing to do? Because he would be, in effect, a, a mercy killing. So, and the whole story set up a character who begged to be killed, and it was it was a uh, it was a, a release. And even then, the only the way we had to solve it was it wasn't that Superman killed her; it was that he allowed her to die. He did not past a certain point. He didn't fight to move past the the, the energy field or the barrier or whatever was put up between him and this person. And so the whole idea of what a hero is, which is informed by um, a kind of conflict involving the military that we're aware of, that in many ways is even worse than the Vietnam conflict, which, of course, you know, brought the real horrors of war into people's living rooms for the first time, as opposed to it being something that they only saw in heavily edited newsreel footage or or the, the fiction of Hollywood. Well, because of the fact that, you know, the Geneva Convention and the Articles of War have no bearing on the conflict that we're in, I think in a, in a lot of ways, 
it's much more terrifying to the impressionable than previous wars have been. And I'm very interested going forward to see how, especially as younger writers, tackle heroic fiction, uh, superheroes specifically, how those changing values affect the product. I have moved away from writing superheroes, and I found it very, very difficult uh, to get back into that headspace to do the Superman um, because I've been doing more reality-based things and was more comfortable with it. In a lot of ways, I, I mean, I'm not making any qualitative comparison between myself and Denny, but I think my personal sensibility is a little bit closer to his. I'm much, I, I found I was much more comfortable with Batman, much more comfortable with a character who couldn't fly. Um, and all the, and the Blackhawk books, where the, these were real mortals, and you were trying, and, that, and of course what they hated about the stuff I did, the, the Blackhawk fans, I wrote away from the science fiction, I wrote away from the giant war wheel, and the, you know, the, the, um, the post-quality DC late 50s Blackhawk that everybody loved, uh, was like, oh, everything else Jack Schiff was editing was a lot of science fiction in it. There were a lot of stories where Blackhawk was fighting aliens, and I, what right. I did, what I did was 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 follow uh, Chaikin, who tried to do a, a very reality-based and historically accurate version of it. And I really, I really enjoyed doing that. And I came out of that whole experience thinking, you know, what I do is now very polarized. It's either very Gonzo, off the wall. I mean, I would love to, to do, I, if I were going to do another retro project, I would love to revisit the Plastic Man with Joe State or the Metal Man. And do something that was very satirical and, and, and balls to the wall comedy. Um, some of the cartoons, cartoonier stuff that I've done, Roger Rabbit and all the rest of that. That's one thing. And then the opposite extreme is trying to do relatively naturalistic, uh, action adventure. Not much of a middle ground. But superheroes sort of. <laughs> Now let's uh, go back to our conversation with Marty Pasco. We ended things with Marty talking about his series, Blackhawk. Now, Marty took over the series. Uh, Howard Chaikin did that excellent prestige format series of the Blackhawks during World War II, a very realistic depiction of the Blackhawks. And Marty followed up with their adventures in the post-war years. And we start off with me complimenting Marty on his run because, frankly, I think it's one of the better Blackhawk runs ever. Well, and, you know, I've told you this before. Your Blackhawk run in particular is among my favorite stuff that you've ever written. And I, and I, loved, I loved what Howard set up in the, in the uh, initial miniseries mm-hmm. uh, in, that, in that World War II era. And you immediate, I, I really think that Cold War era, especially immediately after World War II, is fascinating. And uh, Blackhawks were kind of – the Blackhawks were a perfect uh, – group right. to explore all the gr- shades of gray that were going on during the early years of, and really subsequently the entire Cold War. Yeah, and of, so, course, and of course the audience reaction to it was crickets, you know. <laughs> yeah. Dead silence. <laughs> you know something yeah, yeah. though, Marty? Honestly, if they package that stuff today, I really believe that the more adult readership will, will gravitate to it because it's um, it really is, I think, in tone. Guys, Again, my friend Greg Rucka, who writes right. Queen and Country, right. a straight-up espionage book. And I think there's more acceptance for these other genres. And and the fact that if they have the – much like what Frank Miller did with Daredevil mm-hmm. and, and, and really made Daredevil a crime comic, and instead of wearing a trench coat, the, the detective's wearing spandex. I mean it's that kind of thing, and I think the more effective Batman writers – and it started with Denny obviously did that. You know, So it's – that's what I'm saying. I, I do think but that Batman, there's room see, for that. Batman lends himself to that. I would say he's the most psychologically soundly constructed superhero 
that DC has. Uh, what, what I mean by that is not that he's, he's mentally sound, but that, that from a psychological standpoint, the character motivations, the trauma, the issues that he's working out make a kind of sense. And it's, sure. it's, it's much easier as a screenwriter to write that. Because you know you ha- you have to surrender. Your, okay, the guy's nuts, but he's nuts in a good way. You know. But but I think too that with Superman, and this is what gets lost. And and I've had this conversation with Jeff Loeb. I think Clark Kent is that device to that more realistic story, as you said with your uh, newspaper strip. You put him back in the newsroom, and that's the thing. He's an investigative journalist, Jur- as you said with Lou Grant. That's what these people do. The good journalists are right there, right. finding out the finding out what's happening in the real world and trying to figure it out for us to read, but also for themselves. And that's why I think that that investigative detective portion of Superman lies in Clark Kent. Well, you do need the bells and whistles. I think, it's easier, I, I think it's easier to do that in the version of Superman that is basically the John Byrne retcon because that's set up proceeding very much from the conscious choice that Clark Kent is the real person and Superman is the construct. My vision of the character is that neither Superman nor Clark Kent uh, are the real person. The real person is Kal-El from Krypton, an alien who is trying to navigate the world of human beings and does it through two different persona. But, right. but they're both artifice. But I also think that, again, that's that same thing. I am an alien trying to figure out this world that has nurtured me and made me what I am. What can I do to help them? And how can I help them better as, as a person, regardless of whether I am an, a human person or a Kryptonian? I, that's, that's what I mean. I, really, I think it's there. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I, I think... Everybody needs to step back and remember that part of of Superman because I I think that Clark Kent has gotten lost in the last ten years and in the post burn era and I mean Jeff Jeff Johns did a very wonderful job I think of balancing the two sides of Superman mm-hmm. um, and I think that uh, in, in brief strokes I loved uh, the War on New Krypton and I thought right. James Robinson told a very that man just totally uh, touched the great Silver Age science fiction Superman stuff, but also got to the the human side of Superman, sticking him on Krypton and making him the alien among his own people. Mm-hmm. But that's and and that was a wonderful twist. But that's what I think I, I really think that it is that Clark Kent side that can that can connect with people. And I think Straczynski's story is just trying way too hard to be an after school special. <laughs> and what and what we really needed was you know, it's okay for Clark to say, well who am I after all of this? I don't really know if I'm the, the person I'm supposed to be, but it just, you know, mm-hmm. like I said, I just felt it was very ham-fisted and a, and a territory that Superman readers had been through before. Okay. I mean, uh, <laughs> Joe, <laughs> Joe is a force of nature, Joe Straczynski, um, and I, I'm really, uh, you know, I... I I have the sense that it's very, very easy to get into a public feud <laughs> with the guy, and we have some history together. So I, I'm not going to comment. Um, okay. The problem that I have with a lot of this stuff is that, and I, I have to believe that this is in part responsible for some of the diminishing numbers. If you occupy a universe in which you know from past experience that everything is going to be retconned and changed around again, you're reluctant to make an emotional investment in it. And you get to a point where, inevitably, at any point in a the story, there's a lull. There's a you know, in an arc, there's an issue or two where you know people are off their game or whatever. It's so much easier to just say, "Eh, I'll stop." 
because why do I need to, you know, why do I need to weather uh, the bumps in the road to, to see if this thing pans out if I know that only six months later it's going to be completely thrown away and, and, and redone? I mean, I think the retconning, well, I understand why they go back to it, but I'm starting to wonder if we haven't done it as an industry too many times. Um, I don't quite understand the reaction to the, the DC reboot, the negative thing. People say, I'm going to quit DC. I understand that there's, a, some, there's an effort to make some kind of protest at San Diego. Yeah, I can't wait to see the five people that show oh, yeah? up to that. Oh, yeah? Go on. Uh, that's my own feeling. I think a lot of angry – I think there's a loud, angry minority well, that's yelling about it. But what go are ahead, they so please. angry about? This is what I can't – I mean, aren't they used to this by now? And how is – more to the point, I know you're used to asking the questions, John, but I, I, you talk to a lot more people who are um, actively involved in comics on a day-to-day basis than I do. So you may have garnered in your travels a little bit more of an insight into this uh, than I have, but – I don't understand why they're getting so excited. Isn't this just the same old same old? I mean, how is this any different? From, <laughs> how is this any different from Final Night or you know Final Crisis? Final Crisis. Uh, oh, Final uh, Night too. Absolutely, you're right. Any of those 90s. stunts? Any of those? I totally stunts. forgot about Final All Night. The, you know, Zero Hour, Final Night, Final well, Crisis, it, 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 Crisis on all. You know, uh, all, all of these things. They, they don't change anything, really. They change different things. But, I mean, you don't you don't surmise that this one is a little more different and more akin to well, only, uh, what they were hoping to do after Crisis on Infinite Earths, only or because I don't know as much about it. And, and okay, so, so you tell me what do you have a sense of where they're going? I mean, I, I have not read. Admittedly, I mean, I'm not spending a lot of time hanging out on the internet looking this stuff up, but <laughs> but I don't have a sense that anybody from DC has spoken directly to the question of what is their intent? Why did they feel this was necessary? Why are they resetting all these books as number ones? What, what is the purpose of this? And what, what is, you know, cause I, well, I think it's, I think it's twofold. I think I, it, there's the publisher reason why they're doing it. And there's the fan reaction to it. Let's speak quickly to the fan reaction to it. I think it's two things. As you say, event, 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 they get a little tired of it and, and feel like they've been jerked around. But I also think that a good number of these people that are yelling about this, were too young to be around for the stuff we've been talking about, oh, I see. the the, the post crisis thing. Uh, like I said, I'm one of those now mid forties guys that very clearly remembers Kryptonite Nevermore and Denny O'Neill uh, coming in and shaking things up in Superman. And so this is my fourth, or literally my third or fourth dramatic reset of the DC universe. So it, if anything, I'm excited by it and look forward to the differences. The reason why I think uh, DC Publishing is doing it, it's a combination of losing market share with sticking with this old, uh, very, you know, I mean, really, with, with very few little tweaks here and there, and tweaks done on an individual basis, essentially we're still in that post-John Byrne Man of Steel era. I mean, they've, they've retold Superman's story a couple times since then. It's always every 10 years. But again, you're, I think most of the people that are yelling about it are probably in their 20s and didn't really, you know, it didn't phase them the first time or maybe they came in right after the first change. So the, for them, this is a big, a big shift of, what do you mean we're starting at number one? I also think there's the collectability, which I hate because I would rather treat comic books as literature than baseball cards. And I don't really care about number ones, and I've but I've been buying this book since number one. How dare you? Well, that's a, reset. That's a that's know. a very telling comment, and I, I can really relate to it because one of the things I've noticed 
um, you know, I, I, I did a decade back at DC as an editor and only did a little bit of writing because at that point they really didn't want their staff people competing with the freelance talent. So I did an occasional fill-in here and there. Uh, and basically the writing I did was invisible in the sense that I, I was writing stuff on staff for the custom comics, you know, writing an eight-page script overnight to meet the client's deadlines, you know, that kind of a thing. Okay. And I often said to myself, you know, if I had to write comics full-time, I'm not sure I would know what I was working on. Is it a, a collectible? Is it something designed to be read? Are we in the business of entertaining people with our content? Or are we manufacturing, you know, Franklin Mint plates? I mean, right. it got to the point where you really didn't know what business you were in. And I feel that we, we still have to some extent that going on in the business in the sense that all the creative all the creatives have to address a number of different marketing agendas and those differing marketing agendas, some of which seem to be self-contradictory, are a function of the fact that comics are more than just reading matter. And whether that's in point of fact true, whether there's still that kind of collectability, we've, we've seen you know trading cards fall by the wayside and all the rest of that. Whether that's really... Reality or not is, is, is beside the point. It's, it's that they are perceived in that way. And a certain lack of substance to comics still seems to obtain from the era in which we were publishing things to be hermetically sealed in plastic, where the, you know, the intention was not to read them. Right. Um, you know, because I still make the joke, you know, you know a hundred years from now, people are going to cut open those plastic bags and they're going to discover that, you know, that, uh, that Spider-Man 1 uh, cover actually has a Millie the Model interior in it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I'm, not really, I'm not really sure what's driving all of this because it, as far as DC is concerned, my assumption would be that this is a studio agenda. That this is an op- that this is a Absolutely. way to do in in the you know in the context of the continuity retconning of the material to make it more viable as film and, or, or, or television. But yet, hundred percent with you. Absolutely, and and also so, the other. But why are we, too. then? Why are they still beating the dead horse that is Jonah Hex? See that that's what I, it, it, not, nothing that I see makes any sense. I mean, it, well, the way what they're doing with Jonah Hex specifically with that magazine, and I think it's brilliant. Is Jonah Hex is essentially the Batman of DC Western. So I do think it's smart to keep a front feature of Jonah Hex, but there's a backup feature that gives everybody the opportunity to rediscover the Vigilante, Cinnamon, Batlash, any any of these other DC Western characters. Well, good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, and I, I, I still mean, think I still think a, a good Jonah Hex movie can be made. They just the studio needs to get out of its own way, and unfortunately, I think we saw it too with the Green Lantern movie. I, what, what were? Did you see Green Lantern? No. <laughs> oh, you still haven't seen no, it? No, I, I, I still haven't. Uh, okay, okay. Because that's the thing. It, it's I think when the as you know as a, as a veteran of, of television and film, it's when movies are made by committee that they fail. And I think that's what happened with Jonah Hex. They had so many ideas. They wanted to not only do the classic Tony De Zuniga, John Albino version, but they had to put in the stuff that uh, oh, and uh, uh, Joe Lansdale put in in the '90s, the Two Gun Mojo story, and 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 you, and then you had even that steampunk 
attempt at Western science fiction of Wild Wild West, the Will Smith movie thrown in there with his ridiculous Gatling gun on his horse. Jonah Hex is Clint Eastwood with a bad facial scar. Leave him alone. That's what Jonah Hex is. And you had a perfect actor in Josh Brolin Mm -hmm. that could bring that kind of realism and grit and and give you a really strong Western that you could put with Appaloosa and uh, 310 to Yuma and and all these great recent Westerns. And instead, they they went for schlock. What what you seem to be describing as the collision between people who want to do the source material and people who see the source material as a way to an end. It's like, I want to do a Western with noir or horrific elements – um, what have you got? Okay. All right. We'll put the Jonah Hex brand on it and we'll do what I want to do. And then they have a collision with a writer or a producer or an actor who says, no, I really like this, this source material. I want to do Jonah Hex. So what, this is what it sounds like. I mean, you know. Sure. Um, I, I've had experiences with people like that. And it's, it's, it's not impossible for good things to come out of it. But, I mean, a perfect example that. This was the Twilight Zone uh, uh, revival that I, that I worked on back in the day. Uh, the mid-80s mid television yeah, show. Yeah, Phil DeGuerre, who was an executive producer who fans of, of comic book movies might know as the poor guy who was forced to do Doctor Strange as a two-hour TV movie for Universal. And he hated – he ended up – came off that experience so disenchanted that I had a hell of a time getting him to sit still for writers who had – if they had comic book credits in their background we had some we had some wonderful writers that we were trying to uh to uh, to sell and in some cases we succeeded only by not telling phil that they they were into comics and i mean and, and it got really kind of silly too because um one of the one of the people we were trying to to do a deal with is i had their agent uh were, were uh, bill Mooney and uh miguel ferrer who were you know they're now i, I think they're still are these still parts of the the band seduction of the innocent you know, oh yeah, I, that's right. I always forget about their rock band. I always focus on, you know, obviously their uh, Bill's pedigree at television, and, right. and obviously Miguel's become such a wonderful character actor and everything. Right, right. But the two of them, they're they're, they're stone comic book freaks. They, yep. they had a character that they were trying to uh, that they had done as a comic book, and they were trying to get us to to to, to buy in on Twilight Zone. And what we wanted to do was say, okay, look, we'll do this. Uh, in exchange for have, doing some stunt casting with Bill in a remake of It's a Good Life, the uh, the Jerome Bixby short story where he played the little the boy with the telekinetic powers, wishing people to the cornfield. Anthony, yes, yes, exactly. So w- the whole idea was to do uh, either an updating of that or a retelling of that where he would play one of the adults rather than rather than Anthony. But the minute Phil found out about, I think it was Comet Man. Yes, I was going to ask. Yes, that was their hero. Yes, Comet yeah, Man. No, absolutely. Like, like, I remember uh, it well. He just shut down completely, the comic books. Cause, and, that, and it was sad because it wasn't anybody's fault. It was just that damn TV movie that Universal forced him to do when he was under contract there. So anyway, <laughs> Phil wanted to do a horror anthology. And, that's, and he had a lot of original concepts. Everybody passed on them. But CBS said, well, we have this thing called Twilight Zone. Now, you know and I know. To say Twilight Zone is a horror anthology is to miss the point of the Twilight Zone. Right. Um, you know, Twilight Zone and all of the writers who got it and who wanted to work on it said, okay, this is a way to do stories about moral dilemmas and, and issues relevant to the world we live in now, but do them with the remove of science fiction and fantasy. Because that was what inspired Serling originally. You know, he was, he was tired of being told, you know, you can't do judgment, you know, 
writers of his generation were tired of being told by the sponsor of a gas company that you couldn't discuss gas, gassing Jews in Judgment at Nuremberg. Right. You know, and you couldn't talk about this and you couldn't talk about that because of the sponsor. So, okay, fine. We can do a story about, about racism if it's a discrimination against an alien, you know. Absolutely. Turn the Nazis into aliens and they're oppressing another alien group yeah. and therefore the discussion no longer becomes political. It's, it's just a you know, different exercise. But that's not what Phil wanted to do. So Harlan Ellison and myself and Rocco Bannon and Alan Bennett and all the people on the show who were huge fans of The Twilight Zone, we kept having these arguments. You know, if I, I would be a very rich man today if I had a dime for every time I heard the phrase, no, Phil, that's Night Gallery, not Twilight Zone. Absolutely. You know, and you see a lot of that in movies. You see, you know, um, so-and-so, the hot director, the flavor of the month, wants to do uh, a story, uh, wants to do something like The Sixth Sense. What have you got? Oh, well, I guess we can take Dead Man and contort it into that. Or, you know, and I, I mean, I'm sure a lot less of that goes on now since the creation of DC Entertainment. But um, I would be in rooms where that sort of stuff was going on all the time. And I couldn't say anything because, you know, I'm sitting, I'm sitting there with uh, studio executives, a hotshot producers, and their flavor of the month writer who's pitching a take on The Flash that has absolutely nothing to do with The Flash but is simply using the Barry Allen character or which, whatever speedster character they were using. And we had one pitch, I remember, from some guy who came in, came in the revolving door and left just as quickly where he was trying to take – all of the Speed Force characters, as Mark Wade had defined them, mm-hmm. including Bart Allen and Impulse, taking all of those characters and making them the stars of, an, of a kind of ensemble show that was his approach to Flash on a television budget. And, you know, we would have these conversations, and I would turn, wow. turn to the other people, and they, everybody would ring off. They would ask me, you know, and they, you know, they would do that thing. They'd turn to me and say, well, what do you think? And, you know, you, what are you going to say? Because... It's very, very clear that they're, it's just a courtesy call. They've decided this is the way they're going to go, and they don't really, you know, you don't really have any authority to quash what they're doing. So you sit there and you say, well, yeah, I guess that could work, you know. <laughs> and then they would ring off, and then everybody in the rooms in New York sits, sits around looking at each other going, that's impossible to produce. It's just, it's just, it just can't. Happen. Right. And and the senior guy in the room will say, "Well, why didn't you say something?" I said, "Well, if I had said what I was thinking in that phone conversation, you'd be getting a call from Burbank tomorrow telling you to fire me." You know. Sure. Not, sure. You know. Um, so I think I think a lot of the changes that have happened have probably been to prevent that kind of scenario. But there is still always going to be that potential for the kind of train wreck you're talking about if people come to a property saying, I want to make this kind of movie, let's retrofit this particular property to fit that agenda, as opposed to saying, I want to make a movie about The Flash or Green Lantern or, or Hawkman or, or whatever. Right. And, and I think they've got a mechanism in place that can make those fits happen. But I'm, I don't really have a sense of how the... Uh, publishing decisions that affect this reboot and this, this stuff going forward serve serve that agenda. And I'm just wondering, I guess, am I not reading in the right places? Am I not? Is there some place I can go to get, you know, get an explanation of what this is before it actually happens? That isn't, no, that isn't I, just puffery? 
I mean, I'm- no, I think I think your suspicions for the general line are are that. And again, the other thing too is, um, like I said, sales are low. So why not, you know, try and put some new energy in these and 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 cut away any store, you know, continuity that is blocking the ability to kind of get past and 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 starting retelling some new stuff, but also to maybe poke into some of these other genres that they have. Um, because they're doing, I don't know if you knew this, they're doing I Vampire. They're bringing I Vampire back, yeah. and 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 they're at least the title. And I don't know how that is going to be rebooted by uh, Joshua Fialkoff, but he's the writer that's in charge of that. They're doing a Black Ops uh, Blackhawks that sounds like their attempt. I, I think they're trying to do Blackhawks as GI Joe. Yeah, I saw I, I saw the art on that. Yeah. So and Mike Costa is a very effective writer. Who has? I mean, I, I I was too old to appreciate what Larry Hama brought to GI Joe back in the '80s, but certainly do literally appreciate it because he he brought character to those action figures when they you know reduced them down to the size they were back in the '80s from a toy standpoint. Well, the uh, the, the, the comic book was a whole different thing. Um, my experience with GI Joe was 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 with the animation, which was at the same time. There you go. But it was a very were it you, was a different thing. Did, did you write? Did you write for the animation? Oh yeah. Thing? Oh, I forgot yeah. about that. That's oh, right. Yeah. We talked a little bit about it last time. That's right. Yeah. So, how many years were you with GI Joe? Oh, about two. About two, I think. I was. With, okay. I was with Sunbow for for many years. I, I, you know, um, I and rattle off other shows. Yeah, yeah. rattle off other tick. shows. With Sunbow. The Tick was the last thing I awesome. did with them before they uh, they 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 closed their you know folded up shop. Very um, cool. But that was that was very specifically skewing to a, a younger demographic than the comet. Sure. Think. Sure, but I but I think Mike Costa took those ciphers. I'm sorry, but and then I think his updated, you know, is I think he that's the plan for Blackhawk, and I'm I'm thrilled that they got him over there. And I don't know if it's going to last more than an arc or two, but I think they're I think they're playing with some of these genres to have on the digital shelf, and that way, along with the superheroes too, again, possibly dust these things off as possible future movie properties, but also to you know go to a new digital audience and say if you like war stories. This is what we're do- This is how we're, you know, interpreting a today, uh, a, a topical milita- military story today with Blackhawk. Mm-hmm. Again, with with uh, with the All Star Western, which is what Jonah Hex is becoming. You got a Jonah Hex lead story, and then a chance to kind of, you know, look at some of the other older DC Western characters as well, with little backups and things. So I, I think all that's right. And then the biggest thing I think, and the reason why they're uh, rebooting, is uh, the Siegel Schuster lawsuit. That continues to change each time, and I think with this co-ownership that they now have to deal with with the estates of Siegel and Schuster, there's even more of an attempt now to distance the modern interpretation of Superman from that original template to minimize the payments to those estates. Yes, that, really that, that that does seem to be the prevailing opinion. Of course, they're not going to speak to that publicly, but you know, no, yeah, no, interesting. But it's pretty obvious when you look at the aesthetic changes to the costume, and we can only wonder what. Uh, Grant Morrison's uh, because I guess Grant's first story is going to be a slight kind of okay let's a, a soft you know secret origin reboot to, of some extent it's going to be a year one Superman story of some sort hmm. so that'll be interesting and it's too bad because Jeff Johns just in his latest uh, secret origin of Superman I thought told a wonderful story that acknowledged all the old stuff he made it work with the Legion he figured out a way of having Superboy back and and it's this wonderful story, but again, yeah, I think maybe legal realities are are forcing them to, or not forcing, but you know, moving in a typical corporation way of let's pay off as few people as we need to, 
and, 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 and retain as much as we can of the character. And in fairness, the character did evolve past what, uh, you know, Jerry and Joe originally created in 1938. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so we'll see. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm just in the, you know, it, <sighs> training and old habit. People yes. ask me questions on the assumption that I know more than I do, you know, what's the strategy? What's, what's, why are you doing all these retroactive books at the same, why are they doing all these books at the same time as they're doing the flashpoint and the, the announcing this reboot in the 52, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, go ahead. You don't know. You don't know. I'm guessing. I don't. And I'm more concerned that anything I say will mis- misconstrued as if I do, because I'm used to, you know, working more closely with a publicist before doing these kinds of things, and okay. getting a brief, <laughs> getting a briefing about what we would, you would rather not, we would you, rather you not talk about, sure, and so on and so forth. And I get the sense that they don't work that way anymore. Um, <laughs> just, just, well, from, just more from what I read, some of my other colleagues saying, you know. Uh, well, I, I also think it's interesting because yeah, I've seen, uh, I've seen Kerry talk on record of of what he's doing with uh, with his retroactive books, Kerry Bates. Um, I, it's funny because some read, readership seems to demand to know, yeah, why why the timing of this now, and and they are putting a lot of importance, to, not to minimize you know any reaction to what you guys are doing, but I think they're saying, like you said, it's like well, why is this coming coming out now? It's it's just a fun exercise, and I think from a business standpoint, obviously, because uh, being a and I hate the word comic journalist, but I guess that's what I do. But but from the various people that I've spoken to, you put together a composite picture, and obviously, and I think they did say this on the record, they needed time to prepare for these fifty-two books, and it's taking a lot of their staff and having them do, you know. Right these new stories it happened right after infinite crisis where editors were asked to come in and write a couple quick stories before they made the changes posted with one year later so rather than forcing denny i remember being part of that and writing a two-part batman story before things would switch over but you know these are just kind of fun little things and let's let's appreciate them for what they are and and that's great and then, and mm-hmm. if they succeed or fail, so be it. But don't worry so right. much. I mean, well, the, people are yelling about Flashpoint for the same way. And uh, where does this Flashpoint story come in? Because there are still other monthly stories that are coming out during Flashpoint. And I'm confused. And I'm like, well, you're just stupid. Why do you think? I mean, <laughs> well, you know, in a, what, it's nothing's in a straight line. Just assume that Flashpoint happens after these other stories that are in process are still coming out. It's that simple. What you're talking about goes to the heart of what I always liked about DC Comics and what I think people who were more Marvel fans disliked about DC Comics and what I started to say earlier uh, giving you know Dan DiDio props for uh, recognizing the, the greater potential for diversity of product if you're not so hidebound by continuity if you Indeed. spend more time thinking about entertainment entertaining stories thinking of the what Jacques Barzan calls the reader over your shoulder as opposed to you know, um, forgive me, masturbating into a cup. Uh, <laughs> if you think about what we would call the end user, if not the reader, more than playing connect the dots, you have a greater richness. You have a great, I mean, you can make the argument that, you know, and Julie, as I said earlier, had 
annoying tendency to do this. If people had thought the way you do back then, we wouldn't have this, that, or the other. And God help me, I'm starting to, to hear myself do it too. If people had worried quite so much about continuity and, and, and had been that hidebound by it uh, back in the late 50s when the, in the Superman continuity there was this sudden renaissance of creativity, we wouldn't have half of what people are building on today. Indeed. We wouldn't have the imaginary story if, if people thought over much about making it work in terms of the continuity. And, and that was the genius of people like Weisinger and Schwartz, who were fans at one point. They understood that there was a, a fan base within the, the broader readership. And it had to make sense. There had to be an, an internal logic to it. But you could do that with devices. You could say, okay, this is outside of current continuity. The fact that Dan welcomed bringing back the multiverse, the multiple Earths, and I, I don't know, are they collapsing that back down into a single world again? Nobody knows. Nobody knows, Marty. Yeah. It, it's, it's a question of what the 52 and what follows, what, what comes out of it. I hope it is, I, but go ahead. I never had a problem with that because it's, it's a device that allows you to, to create a lot of different things, explore a lot of different possibilities. It's a way of sure. not ruling anything out. And it's even better. The multi- multiverse to me is even better than an imaginary story because as the, some of the final crisis stories uh, demonstrated, you can move from one planet to another. I mean, that, that, that was the whole thing that, that uh, Julie liberated himself from the whole um, Golden Age characters on Earth 2 strictly and the Silver Age characters strictly on Earth 1 when he had Dinah Lance you know, crossover. crossover, right? Yeah. So you know, Denny started all of that, and ever since then, there's it's been more fluid. And and, and you could make the argument that you got rid of the multiverse in the first place because it became unnecessary, uh, and it was it was it was confusing. But I think to some extent, as I started to say earlier, you threw the baby out with the bathwater. So I really I really applaud Dan as the executive editor of DC, saying, you know, being open to embracing. That and and you know he he has said to me at least on one or two occasions when I've been trying to pitch stuff to him, if you get a good story out of it, if it allows you to do something different, why not? And I think that's a, a wonderfully liberating attitude. I am hoping that they don't repudiate that or, or or back away from that, and that whatever it is that they do going forward is still done in that spirit. Uh, I agree. So I I guess I in a sense share your what seems to be your frustration with. Um, you know, the people say, "Why does? How does this fit?" Because um, I don't really understand how your enjoyment of a story is dependent on that. Or, or con- Thank conversely, you. how can it, how can it be spoiled? You know. But then again, it's so easy to say something glib that offends people, like "Get a life." <laughs> no, and it's no, and I understand, and I also appreciate that love of the soap opera that they've been enjoying in some cases for twenty years, and some of them are those angry people that you know, discovered sure. DC around the crisis and were thrilled with what's been going on. I mean, there's that there's that outcry, and it's something that we discussed with Gail uh, in, in uh, uh, a recent conversation about that transition back from Oracle in the wheelchair back to Barbara Gordon as Batgirl. Mm-hmm. And, man, that's a minefield of, of a lot of angry people and also people that are hurt about it that are disabled and look to Oracle as a, as a real hero to them. I mean that's like giving Daredevil his sight back in their in their estimation, and I can appreciate that. So uh, it's it's 
it's tough. But I also think, as we said, that the license, it's the they got to sell the toys. They got to sell the bed sheets. And well, there have been wonderful what versions of Batgirl, but Barbara Gordon at the end of, day, of the day is still Batgirl. And what you're saying now, I am scratching my head because I don't understand why reverting you know, Barbara Gordon Oracle to Batgirl is necessarily a stumbling block. I mean, we're in a universe now where it is a convention of comics, a generally accepted trope, that a heroic or costume persona or identity or whatever can be occupied by various different people. Uh, I never envisioned that it would be taken as far as it did when Walt and I decided to go with the conceit of Dr. Fate is not Kent Nelson, but it's actually this character in this helmet, and it could be anybody who puts on the helmet. And it, and, and that seems, at DC, I know it was being done at, at Marvel uh, in a different way, but, uh, and, and to a lesser extent in, this, in the Legion of Superheroes, some of the, you know, some of the superheroic yes. identities, like Lightning Lad died in the early, early in the, in, in the, in the Legion, and Lightning Last took it over, and, you know. Yes. But I mean... It wasn't when I was writing comics regularly, superhero comics. It wasn't that much of a of a, of a standard convention. Now, um, you know, different people have been in the suits in almost every franchise, and even Superman, for example, as a in the planet, uh, you know, the, the, rather the new Krypton storyline. You know, Monel was effectively the Superman of Earth. Am I not? I'm not sure. I oh, absolutely. Well, or even that, even the fun of the, after the death of Superman when they had the four different right, uh, fake okay. Superman running sure. around and stuff. So the question then becomes, if that's what we accept, why should Batgirl and, and Oracle, Oracle be a problem? Some other um, IT ex- expert or researcher uh, who happens to be disabled can assume that role. Uh, yeah, and, and I understand that, but I also under, I do get – I think the problem is – and again, it, it, it speaks to the soap opera that it, it compromises and, – and, and again, Gail's going to address this, and I'm, I'm very – that's a tough order. How do you – because Barbara Gordon as an older woman changed and, and, mm-hmm. and, and matured when she was you know, stuck in the chair mm-hmm. and became a stronger character. And Gail certainly exploited it to great effect because sure. – uh, they had that theme. I don't know if you read it recently, but in the last uh, couple of years, in Birds of Prey, they had a new spy smasher. Sure. Uh, and she was a real pain in the ass to Barbara Gordon. And finally, Barbara Gordon in the chair is like, we're going to fight. And Spy Smasher right. standing there. It's like, you're nuts. Right. And she's like, no, let's go. And it was wonderful. And it was this great, great scene. And uh, it just kind of showed the strength of Barbara Gordon. And that's and I think that's the fear of these disabled people is of course you can put a, a, a new disabled person and have them be a very honorable character. It's not it, but it, but what made it even cooler was that this hero that suffered this tragedy became even more heroic. So she's going to you she's know. going to regain her mobility in continuity. I get it's not, you know it's, it's not, a reset button kind of a thing where oh, we're, I, well, I don't I don't even know about Oracle where there never you know that world where there never was a killing joke you know. I'm not really sure because um, I have heard DC say on record, yes, the killing joke did happen. I don't know if we're going back and revisiting Barbara back in her Batgirl year one stage and that they are going to acknowledge it. I don't know what they're going to do. And that's why it's like, again, I would like to read the story and find out. But because DC said that, that that, uh, everything in the killing joke did happen. Now, I don't know if it's maybe Flashpoint is is de-aging Barbara. I have no idea. Mm. 
I, I don't know how it's going to happen. Well, I, but, I just the, the voice of Marv Wolfman always rings in my ears when we talk about stuff like this. Marv saying, "Doesn't anybody know that uh, nobody stays dead in comics anymore?" Exactly. Exactly. You know, so I mean, no, you know, in, a, in a world where you've got you know cloning and people get married, people get divorced, people die, they come back. I mean. You know, who cares? Why are we getting bent out of shape about any, any you know, any given continuity evolution? So it's well, but the, the argument, the fan argument back is, if death is so irrelevant, why should we care in the first place? And it's a nihilistic conclusion that I think you've got to remember that uh, they still, you know, Conan Doyle tried to kill off Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. and the public wouldn't let him do it. Right. So he brought him back, and it didn't matter how he brought him back; they just wanted more yeah. Sherlock Holmes stories. So you have to. Uh, and it, and it, I think it happens for most comic readers at some point in their late 20s, early 30s, that they come to the realization that there really can't be a last story that truly is a the end. That these things have to go on and will go on well after you stop reading them because that's just the way it is. These characters are too big to die and to be allowed to truly die. So enjoy the storytelling of a comic book death if it was done successfully and don't worry so much about how cheesy the resurrection is it doesn't matter but you know but from the publisher standpoint it's really not necessarily in their best interests to not fan the flames of whatever pseudo controversy may arise around these characters because absolutely as comics become more like show business than ever before we are reminded of the old showbiz attitude that any publicity is good publicity Hey, they're killing off uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, which, right. again, doesn't affect the, the regular Marvel Universe, but absolutely, they've just killed him off, and a new Spider-Man is going to take his place in the Ultimate Universe. That's great. That gives Brian Bendis the chance to have right. written a, a wonderful death scene and Mark Bagley to draw right. it, and, it and, and that's great. And again, appreciate the emotions of that moment, and, and know that, of course, they're coming back. Well, it's a testament to how much more comics-aware, uh, comic-savvy the mainstream press, if there even is such a thing anymore, uh, has, has, has become because the, the press doesn't, doesn't treat these stories anymore as if they are this, you know, dramatic, earth-shaking thing. You know, it's just they take it in a stride. It's like, yes, well, they're killing off this character, and it'll probably be back, be back three weeks from now. But, you know, it's to the point, too, of spoiling the story. I mean, they tell you the day before it comes out, hey, tomorrow, Spider-Man dies. And this is why they're doing it. You know, I mean, they they pull the they rip the curtain right off and tell you, oh, this is coming up. So, but that's fine. Again, it's to get people to want to buy the books mm. and get the curiosity. The to getting the asses in the seats is more important than spoiling the story at this point for a lot of these publishers. Absolutely. I wanted to ask about Julie Schwartz and Mort Weisinger's connection to the science fiction pulp world, okay, and how they influence comics and stuff because they brought in so many of these writers that ended up writing classic stories. Mm. And I don't think comic fans associate that, like, Ed Hamilton wrote the wonderful uh, Superman Under the Red Sun right. uh, mm-hmm. st- story on Earth that was also made into a Justice League cartoon mm-hmm. to great effect. But Ed Hamilton was this wonderful pulp science fiction writer yep. that, you know, was doing stuff. So if you would, sure. you well, know. Sure. Ju- well, Ju- Julie and Mort um, were members of what? science fiction people call first fandom, effectively the founders of comic book fandom. Um, there were a group of them. Science uh, fiction fandom. Yes, science fiction fandom. Uh, Mort and Julie uh, met uh, at a meeting of a science fiction club. I believe it was called the Science Ears, that was held either in Brooklyn or in the Bronx. 
uh, I think Julie grew up in the Bronx and uh, Morton, one of the other boroughs. And this was the first place where a lot of the earliest science fiction fans who would later uh, be instrumental in the creation of the first world con later in the 30s met. Julie talks about all of this. And he, before, before he died, he obviously met because he didn't do anything after he died. Uh, that's intelligent, Marty. Uh, he, but he just, uh, what I meant to say was just before his death, Julie uh, wrote a memoir. Yes. Um, that was not exactly Vanity Press published. It was published by a small publisher. I don't even know if it's, if it's still in print. But he, he outlines all of this you know, in print. But um, they became friendly uh, as teenagers around the same time, roughly the same time, uh, that Siegel and Schuster were becoming uh, friendly. And in fact, um, Julie and Mort, without any inclina- inclination, or rather uh, inkling, I, I mean to say, uh, of the roles they would later play in Siegel and Schuster's lives, they, they traded fanzines. Um, Siegel contributed articles to the, the, I believe it was called The Time Traveler, which was the, fan- yep. the fanzine that, that Julie and Mort uh, created. And Isaac Asimov was part of that group. Forey Ackerman was part of that group later on. Ray Bradbury, too, I believe. Well, Ray Bradbury was much younger. He was on the West Coast as well. Exactly. And Ray Bradbury was one of Julie's and Mort's first, actually Julie's first clients. Uh, what happened was after the, the, I think it was like the, the just before the, the first World Con, I don't know when that was actually held, but somewhere in the late 30s, Julie and Mort started a science fiction literary agency called Solar Sales Services. And among their clients were people who were giants in fantasy fiction, but who were just, you know, just, you know, dime a dozen pulp writers, writers uh, to the publishers of the pulps of that day, because not everybody was Hugo Gernsback. Hugo Gernsback being, you know, the founder of, of the science fiction pulps. So H.P. Yep. Uh, uh, Lovecraft was a client of Julie Schwartz's toward the end of his, his life. Robert E. Howard um, was a client. Uh, I don't know how, m- how much they were able to do uh, for the, the older people, but it was more a matter of setting up reprints of their stuff, and getting a, a decent rate for it. A lot of people who went into comics even before Julie did had been clients of his, like Henry Kuttner and, yep. and, uh, and Alfie Bester. I was going to ask about Alfie Bester because there's a connection to Green Lantern with Alf- Alfred Bester. He wrote several stories. And well, I, am I, I correct? Thanks to Julie. I got, I, got, I got to know Alfie a little bit, uh, which I wouldn't presume to call him Alfie if, it, if I hadn't. I mean, he, had, he was an incredibly charming man and very urbane, sophisticated, and what a memory. I met him once in Julie's office. We had a very pleasant time. He was he, – he, it was one of those things where he, he got into telling a story about, about something that uh, he knew – uh, as part of research for uh, Holiday Magazine, I believe it was called Holiday. He was a he was an editor of a of a very upscale traveling um, uh, magazine for for uh, world travelers, and I thought it was a tremendous idea. And he said, "Go ahead, use it, use it," because I was plotting a Joker story. So one of the the, the Joker had a very short lived run in his own title. Great, great I, book, though I remember it well. Victim of the DC implosion. Yep, Go on. Yep. And the one I wrote uh, 
pitting Joker against the, the Royal Flush Gang. There's a credit to Alfie in that story because the, the, the crime is based on an idea that he was just talking about. And he's incredibly generous. And I said, well, what do you want for it? He says, oh, please, just, you know. I said, well, do you mind if we mention you and give you a credit? And he says, well, of course not. It'll help you more than me, but go ahead, you know. <laughs> and I didn't take that the wrong way. I know exactly what he meant. No, absolutely, man. You put his name on there. He very, was being very generous. We spent maybe 20 minutes, all of 20 minutes together. Cut to about a year later. I'm at a Worldcon. I'm in the bar at the hotel. And Alfie, here's my drink order. He says, put it on me. And I look down and he says, how you doing, Pasco? And I, I wasn't wearing a name badge. I, just, I, you know, I was nobody and, and not a part of his world at all. But yeah, he was like he was like that. He was a very urban, very sophisticated man with a tremendous memory for faces and people, which is why I really believe his account that he didn't have anything to do with the rewriting of the oath. That that that. It, That's what I was going to ask. Okay, there's a a story going around that he might have created in Brightest Day and no, he, in Blackest Night. He said he didn't, and Julie didn't know who did because it was done before Julie joined All American Comics. I see. But it's believed that it was Henry Cutner, and the reason. Ah. That was the reason for the confusion because Cutner and uh, Bester were both clients of Julie's before sure. he came to work there. So that probably that probably got confused. Uh, Julie met Ray Bradbury in one of his trips out west that he was taking periodically before before he he shut down the agency and met him. Ray Bradbury was selling newspapers. Uh, on a you know like beside the freeway, and the way Julie tells it is he was in his car and stuck in traffic, and they started exchanging details, and it realized and and and, and Julie realized that a lot of the people in science fiction that he knew were also people that that Bradbury knew, and Bradbury said, "I'm an aspiring writer. Would you read some of my stuff?" Uh, other accounts suggest that Ray had already made his first couple of sales before Julie took him on, but it definitely. Julie was responsible for uh, helping Ray place a lot of stories in the early 40s that led to his becoming a radio writer. He wrote a lot of episodes for Suspense in the mid-1940s. So he was starting to promote him. He was starting to be known as a brand name writer even before he started publishing the collections such as Ars for Rocket that really made him the, the giant figure you know, and, and, and the illustrated man and all those that, that came along later. Uh, have have you listened to X minus one and Dimension X oh, radio shows? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. For people who are listening, um, they would take their material from Galaxy Magazine. At yep. Galaxy was one of the top uh, pulps. Right. And it's if you listen, I mean, they're available online. If you go to archive.org, there are episodes of X minus one and Galaxy. Yep. And if you listen to the writer credits, you'll be stunned to hear yep. Ray Bradbury's name, James Blish, uh, Robert Block, absolutely. so many of these wonderful writers of science fiction. That yeah, and of course, there's the story too with Bradbury and EC Comics, where they, without co contacting Bradbury, uh, yep. stole a story from Bradbury, and Bradbury caught him, and in a very sweet way, uh, and a smart way on his part, kind of wrote him and said, "Yeah, I didn't get that check for that story that you guys uh, adapted of mine." Um, I, I'm sure that that's a mis you know yep. misstep on your yep. part, and uh, look forward to it, and you know to uh, to Gaines's Max, or uh, I should say, uh, Bill Gaines's, yeah. Bill Gaines, thank you. Yeah, to Bill Gaines' credit, yep. he wrote him a check. Yep, yep. And um, 
apparently Julie used to do stuff like that on behalf, had to do stuff like that on behalf of his clients, you know, all the time. Uh, and Lee Brackett, uh, and who's Mrs. Edmund Hamilton. And, and, uh, you know, yeah, oh, a little pedigree on Lee Brackett, of course. There are so many people that I met thanks to Julie. Some of the, some of the most amazing experiences of education distilled down into, you know, brief encounters. Uh, Ray Bradbury, uh, he who made it out to San Diego uh, one year. Jeanette Kahn uh, held a surprise birthday party that year. One of the San Diego conventions was uh, Julie's birthday was that weekend. So Jeanette arranged for a surprise birthday party for Julie uh, in, in the hospitality suite. And Ray came down for that. And I had only met him previously uh, at the Writers Guild uh, at, a, at a screening. And, you know, you, you're standing in line at the, at, at the bar, you know, and you find yourself standing next to Ray Bradbury. Wow. And he was being very, very, you know, being very polite. And I said, I don't, I don't want to intrude on your privacy, Mr. Bradbury. I, I am an admirer, a great fan of your work, but uh, we also have uh, a friend in common. I, I, I'm a comic book writer as well uh, as television, and uh, I, I've done most of my work for Julie Schwartz. Well, that was like an open sesame. Awesome. You know? His his reverence for for Julie and his gratitude for what Julie had done for him probably far out probably exceeded you know what Julie actually did because I mean you know Bradbury obviously he's a genius you know um, sure but the the gratitude and the admiration and the and the and the and the love was was palpable and I, I you know it, it never occurred to me to drop a name for that reason but I, I found that that and that was also true with uh, with Lee Brackett and uh, and Ed Hamilton and what was so fascinating is that so many of Julie's writers were more into going to Hollywood and being screenwriters than they were in science fiction so when Ed and and and, and Lee uh, would come in to the city they'd always come up to you know Julie's and they'd have lunch and Ed would sit quietly in the corner and I felt sort of sorry for him because nobody was asking him about all those great superman stories Carrie Bates, myself, they, you know, Don Crar, we had there were a whole bunch of young writers at DC who wanted to do movies, right? All we wanted to hear about was what was it like working with Jules Firthman on the screenplay for The Big Sleep, and she would, <laughs> what you know, because this was even before she did the the, the the Star Wars script for for Lucas right. before she died. Empire Strikes Back. And the stories that you, know, you would hear from these people, it was like an education you couldn't get anywhere else. And, that, and Julie opened uh, that, a lot of those doors in the same way that I think Mort did for other people, um, just in terms of introducing the people they knew. But what happened was Mort became an editor before Julie. Mort broke away. I uh, was hired by Standard Magazines to become mm-hmm. an editor of Captain Future. Most of those stories were written by Ed Hamilton, so you see a lot of these connections. What Mort did as a fan... Um, in his fanzines, he did for Standard. He had an, an incredible sense for how to boost sales by putting mutants, as they called the mutants in those days, mutants and monsters on the cover of the pulps. A lot of the retconning of the superheroes, in fact, by the way, are in-jokes. Many readers don't know this. There was an editor of the pulps named Ray Palmer, and Julie just took his name and made the new Adam Ray Palmer. And there were... there are, um, a lot of characters that are the names are borrowed from uh, now obscure writer uh, writer or publisher or fictional characters in their stories. Um, and so what so more attracted the attention of of I guess Whit Ellsworth at this point because Vince Sullivan had already left 
and in point of fact, Vin's departure was the reason why uh, both uh, Murray Boltonoff and uh, Mort Weisinger were brought over to DC at the, r- roughly the same time. Uh, he caught their a- attention with his stunt covers, and what they hired Mort to do was um, come up with cover concepts that they could build stories around. And, and it's associated more with Mort than anybody else at DC. For the longest time, they started with the cover first at DC. And sure. they, built, they and, built the story around it. And as you said, that's a, that was a classic science fiction pulp mm-hmm. move, mm-hmm. was to really you know paint the cover first right. and let's write stories right. around it. Yeah. Right. And uh, many people assume that Mort brought Julie into comics. Well, actually, Mort didn't really have that much to do with it. Uh, it was actually Julie's clients in the agency business who had gotten into comics before him who knew that um, the the all-American side of the business was growing dramatically and they needed another editor and they needed somebody who could bring in new writers because a lot of people were moving on. Bester was doing a lot of radio writing. Yes, for The Shadow and other shows. Uh, Yes, it did. Uh, Charlie Chan is the one he always would roll his eyes about. Because uh, <laughs> I've seen his credit on some old radio uh, yeah. packages of of Shadow Shadow sure, Adventures, sure, sure. and it says written by Albert right. Bester, and I was like, "Wow, that's." Really and then, cool. of course, toward uh, in the early fifties, he published The Demolished Man, and that, yes, that, that was it for the media stuff. He was he was the you know the science fiction writer, but um, so Julie had an interview with uh, uh, Shelley Mayer that was arranged um, by one of. His clients, I don't know whether it was Kuttner or, uh, or Bester, but Julie used to like to tell the story about how he didn't really know that much about comic books, and he actually saw his first mm-hmm. comic book in the waiting room, waiting for the interview with Shelley Mayer. Wow. But because writers that came from the same tradition that he did had written so much of the material, Julie recognized the tropes. So in the course of that first interview, he was able to sound as if he knew the medium, and would say, well, you can do this with this character, you can do that with this character, why not, you know. And he understood the antecedents in science fiction uh, of a lot of the concepts that, that he saw just in thumbing through those magazines. And that's, and that's how he got the job. Shelley Mayer was a guy who worked by his gut. He really didn't like to be an editor very much. By all accounts, he was just waiting for that day when he had enough money socked away that he could go freelance and do scribbly. And then after he spent most of the 50s being the primary funny animal uh, artist for DC. Sure. Until he, at the end of the 50s, he created Sugar and Spike. And, and it's a shame that most people don't even, re- you know, readers of DC Comics now have no idea who Shelley Mayer is. Uh, or Sugar and Spike, for that matter, exactly. Right. Uh, if they know anything that he created, they know the Black Orchid, which was the last, the last character that Shelley created. I didn't know he created Black Orchid. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people think it was John Albano, because Albano wrote most of the early stories. But, but no, it... Uh, the character was created by Shelley Mayer. He was a wow. he was a consultant to, to DC in the early seventies, and he was a behind the scenes figure in a lot of things that you know. The, the, Levitz is one hundred percent sure about some of this stuff, you know. And, and doing the research for the for the seventy five years uh, of DC Comics, he would he Paul kept talking about you know he'd discover various things in the files, and you know there was he was he finally had a chance after all this used to actually look at a lot of that stuff, and he was making discoveries uh-huh. left and right himself. But uh, Mayer was a guy who went by the cut. Um, he promoted Bob Kaniger from an assistant editor to a full editor and gave him Wonder Woman on the night he read uh, Kaniger's very first Wonder Woman script. Um, 
which was the day that they got word that Marston had finally died. Marston had been, had been ill with cancer for quite some time, but had been apparently stocking, stockpiling scripts. And just about the time he died, they, they were starting to come to the end of the stockpile, and they didn't know where, where to go. Um, Kaniger was relatively new to the company at the point. He had a reputation. He had a huge reputation in the industry for stunts. Like, you know, uh, and he did this many, many times. Uh, something would uh, go wrong with a writer or an artist. There'd be a hole in the schedule. They'd call up Bob. Bob would dictate the script to the artist over the phone. Um, and 20 pages of comics would be penciled overnight. Wow. Without a, without a typescript. Bob, Bob wow. could do stuff like that. And in fact, that's sort of the way Metalman, as I understand it, was created. There was a, a slot. The editor couldn't deliver the showcase in time. So on a weekend, you know, Bob came up with the... Uh, the with the metal man and Ross Andrew, crazy. Ross Andrew penciled it over a weekend. Yeah, and a lot of stuff was crazy, but it was crazy in a fun, delightful way. But you know, Bob, absolutely, Bob was always one of those guys where I don't know, the story would end on page twenty, and he had to fill twenty-two. So instead of going back and you know cutting and pasting and rejuggling and spreading out the panels, he just you know dinosaurs would burst out of the earth, and the suit, the hero would fight the dinosaurs for the last two pages. That would be the end of the story. <laughs> and the final action sequence had absolutely nothing to do with what had gone before, but. Nobody cared, you know. That's the way that we, <laughs> things were done in those days. And so Shelley, Shelley came away from that meeting with Julie and said, "Okay, fine," and made it because at that time the editors were not really responsible for the art. They were called editors, but they were basically story editors. Okay. And it wasn't until ten years later, toward the middle of the fifties and in, in the late fifties, um, that editors were then re- made responsible for all aspects. And Julie always claimed, you know, disingenuously, of course, because he was very art literate, but he always claimed that he didn't know that much about art. Uh-huh. And Carmine would agree, but only because of the ego, ego of being an artist. And so the, watching the two of them work together was, was, was fascinating because Julie would always defer to Carmine. But there were, on a certain level, Carmine was also deferential to Julie because Julie was one of his first uh-huh. editors. So it was a very, very strange symbiotic relationship, but it was, it was an interesting one. All of the people who worked for Julie and all the people who worked for Mort by the end of the 50s were people who had been put in place by either by Shelley Mayer or by uh, the, the various art directors on the, on the D.C. side of things. Um, Mort was more proactive with the artists, but it was more in terms of, as we've discussed, filling in the holes um, it, 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 in the schedule. Uh, then a style. Well... Once, once Siegel and Schuster were out of the picture, there were only the Superman artists that they had managed to pull away from the, the, Siegel, from, from the, the Schuster shop, like Wayne Boring, who were doing Superman. So they had, to, they had to find their own people to fill that out. And as I said, it was, basically it was Kurt Swan, uh, uh, Wynn Mortimer, and um, um, uh, Wayne, Wayne Boring. Wayne Boring, yeah. And then on Superboy later on, they, they moved over other, other, writer, uh, other artists who had been associated with other features, George Papp, who had done Green Arrow for many, many years. Sure. And had done it with Weisinger. That, that was the other thing I, I meant to say. Weisinger not only came up with the, a lot of story concepts, but in his first couple of weeks on the job, he invented five new features. They were very, very derivative of other things, and you could see their origins. You know, Aquaman was DC's version of Submariner, and sure. Green Arrow was a Batman clone. Eventually, he even had an Arrow cave. Why? Why, oh, yes. why someone with arrows would have to have a cave didn't make any sense, but Batman had a cave, so I guess Green Arrow could have one. Um, <laughs> Vigilante, arguably the most original of all of them, uh, originally started out as a, a period piece Western character, but then they updated it to the modern Western, as I recall, one, at one point in the 
fifties before they discontinued the vigilante altogether. He was driving around on a motor suit, motor scooter, horse. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And and was a singing cowboy, and certainly that was the craze of the right. of the thirties and forties. So well, there's that famous story that you know Del Del got Roy Rogers, somebody else got uh, Gene Autry, and the only thing that was left was Jimmy Wakeley. And uh, you know, the first time I've heard Jimmy Wakeley's name in, in 20 years has been on the, the, the thing that TCM is doing now with their, their singing Cowboys month. But it's, it's, I noticed that on Friday yeah. nights, and honestly, I've never heard of Jimmy Wakeley until they started doing well, that. Never had heard well, of him. Well, there was a DC comic called the, the Jimmy Wakeley, but the famous, fam- famous story, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stop curbing my language. I'll just quote him. Very famous sure. story. You know, what else was – does one of his periodic trips to the coast where he's signing up things, right? Okay. And, properties, uh, properties for DC. To, exactly. To in the next magazine. Yeah. So okay. Dell got Roy Rogers, so he got Dale Evans. Okay, fine. You know, at that point, Dale Evans was still almost an unknown. She just started appearing in the in the movies with with Roy Rogers, and and really excited, right? Whit Ellsworth says, and we've got and Julie, you're going to edit this. We've got Jimmy Wakeley, and Julie looks at him and says, "Who the fuck is Julie? Jimmy?" Wakeley. <laughs> You know, and she says, I knew nothing from westerns. But see, that was the thing about it, about editors at that time. And the professional editor is something that's pretty much gone from this business. Um, the, the, we have, and I don't mean that as a, I don't mean that to be disparaging to the editors currently working. I mean that to mean something very, very specific. It's a term that Paul Levitz used to use. Someone whose stock and trade was to be an editor who would come from other media where they had edited and adopted, or adapted, I should say, uh, their, uh, their skill set to a different medium, as, as opposed to being creatures of the medium. Like Jeanette Kahn, coming from the magazines and, right. and right. publishing DC. Absolutely. And the closest we've gotten to that at DC in recent years have been the, usually the people in the licensed uh, the comics area, where they're doing some comics format stuff, but it's packaged as books. Um, they're... they're a lot of the, the Vertigo people have been have come from a background similar to that. Sure. Uh, Alan Gold, I think, was probably the last DC comic book line editor whose background was as an editor at, at other media. Alan Gold and, and Margaret Clark was an editor uh, of the Star Trek line for a while. Okay. But, but the idea of the professional editor as opposed to what was more in the incoming, the incoming editorial talent when I was starting in the business tended to be people who had done this stuff themselves. A lot of artists... You know, uh, Mike Sikowski was an editor. Ross Andrew was an editor, uh, and, and writers like Denny O'Neill became and Jerry Conway became editors. Absolutely, they, they had a certain kind of credibility that the other edit, the older editors had, but from a, coming from a different place. And in some cases, you could argue perhaps that they had more credibility because, you know, instead of just telling you what was wrong with the script, they could pick up a pencil or or the art. They could pick up a pencil and show you. Sure. You know, and that was that was one of the. One of the reasons, aside from the fact that a lot of the schedule was still published at an eight times or less frequency, uh, one of the reasons why you didn't have late ships back in the day was because you weren't, they weren't so much at the mercy of the talent. A lot of the stuff was a hodgepodge, but if, it, you know, you know, if Jack Kirby turned in a Superman figure that didn't look right, Al Plastina would, would do the patch art and they'd put it over it. Or, sure. or, or, or Joe Kubert or Joe Orlando or somebody would pick up a pencil and redraw it if they had to. You know. well, yeah, there's that notorious uh, stuff of Kirby's Jimmy Olsen, where sure. Murphy Anderson had to redo the heads. Yeah. We might have even mentioned that in the last the yeah. last time we spoke. Yeah, Re- regarding the if real fast, because uh, honestly, you've been very generous with your time. So if you gotta go, <laughs> you can stop. No, 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 no. Honestly, and and really, Marty, it's it's been great. Uh, right. Go ahead, truly. 
did did Julie or any of the sci-fi writers who came right. from the 40s and 50s have you ever had the t- uh, chance to ask like about that shift in the 50s when the Silver Age began and making these her- heroes more science fiction oriented? Do you, did you ever find out why or what? I mean, certainly they were part of pop culture back then. But you know, as a historian yourself of DC and everything, can you surmise why that shift happened? Um, it really wasn't so much the writers doing, actually, I don't think, so much as, as Julie's, um, because that was what he knew. Julie knew science fiction. But, see, there was two things going on. You have to remember that Julie came into his own with the science fiction books, because that was what he, he knew. When he started at AA, he was doing inherited uh, superhero titles, and then he was just following whatever the trend was. Okay. He did westerns. Bob Kaniger, who shared his office, did the war stuff. Julie never really touched romance, except he did edit the romance western comic that they tried to do that didn't go anywhere. Uh, girls, western romance, I think, or something like that. I don't know. I don't okay. Know. But he had gotten wind of uh, uh, Destination Moon which was the fir- what he considered the first real science fiction movie because it was based on a Robert Heinlein story. And he said, I think that would make a great comic book. Ad- we, we could do a great comic book adaptation of that. So Ellsworth secured the rights. They were available very cheaply because it was a small independent studio. E- e- sure. Eagle Lion, I believe, that, that did the movie. Wow, Eagle Lion. How are you doing, everybody? I think that. I think, I think that's what it was. <laughs> well, there were two movies that came out almost simultaneously, Rocketship XL and Destination Moon. Which one had Lloyd Bridges in it? I think that was Rocketship XL. That's the one with the, that, okay. with the downer ending where they're on the ship and they're all going to die. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Destination Moon was the, the first live action feature. I'm sorry, the second live action feature uh, uh, produced by uh, George Powell. Yes. who brought you uh, the, the War of the Worlds and, uh, and the Time Machine. So they came back and they decided, all right, well, instead of just doing a one-shot movie adaptation or making it part of – because their movie adaptations weren't working. They had a deal with Paramount that was part of the whole deal for the, the Superman cartoons to do adaptations of their movies. And a lot of the Paramount stars – that's what the connection they gave you, the Jerry, Adventures of Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin that, that later became the Jerry Lewis book. And the Bob Hope and book was a Exactly, Paramount Bob book. Hope. The, the, the Adventures of Alan Ladd was a title Alan for, Ladd, for a while. Alan Ladd, certainly. Certainly. And you'll see there are things – they would all have um, photographic covers. Uh, Fancy Pants, a movie with Bob Hope and Lucille Ball, is adapted in a – I forget what – it was, an, it was an, an anthology title. Like, you know, something like you know, Screen Comics, Real Screen Comics, something like that. Sure. And that was a big practice back then of adapting yeah, movies like yeah. that. Yeah, But it didn't work so well for DC. So when the, the time came to do Destination Moon, they said, uh, why don't instead we do this as – a feature in a science fiction anthology. And Julie came up with the idea of Strange Adventures. Um, I think Ellsworth or Irwin Donifield came up with the idea of mystery in space. But the whole idea was to take one genre and conflate it with another. So Strange Adventures was kind of like horror in space, was what their original thought was. And mystery in space was mysteries in space. Uh, Julie always had this theory that there were two ways of doing science fiction in comics. You take the familiar and put it in an unfamiliar environment, or the unfamiliar in a familiar environment. Uh, with one, you have Adam Strange, a relatable human being in an unfamiliar environment. 
uh, Space Ranger was later on was viewed as kind originally the original conception of it was a reverse on that. Uh, it was because it was originally conceived as more of a um, a Buck Rogers. I'm sorry, uh, 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 more of a um, alien or from the, a future man uh, in uh, science fiction adventures uh, set in, in, in the, the modern era, I believe. And by the time it actually got to print, it got turned into kind of a uh, Adam Strange clone. But, yeah, okay, I was going to say, there's a similarity to the two. Go on. But Julie started to develop a lot of, of regular features for the science fiction books uh, that started to appear just before... He, he was given – he was charged with the idea of – or pitched. I don't recall uh, who, who really came up with the idea of, well, let's take the old Flash comics and, and, revise, and, and revive them or revive the character. As you, as you know, the original All-Star ended in 1951. Yes. And the 50s, the Korean War era, the communist hysteria era was for some reason no one's been able to explain death for superheroes. With the exception of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, DC got completely out of the superhero business. Yes. And Marvel went through that period of trying to revive Captain America, you know, that, 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 the Atlas Comics period in the early 50s. During that period, though, of, of DCs specifically, there were those uh, secondary features like Green Arrow, Aquaman. They, Am I yes, correct or no? Yes, they hung on, but that was like, largely Mort Weisinger's ego because he had created a lot of them. He created Oh, I, he created Aquaman. Okay. He created Aquaman. And he created uh, uh, Green, Green Arrow. Arrow. So there was a sort of a kind of a uh, a pride. He wasn't making any money off of it, but it was kind of like an ego thing. But yeah, they did they did sort of hop around, but they also alternated. You see, and, and the, there was never the thought that the backup features made or break made or broke the comic. Okay, but fair you enough. Had, you had Congo Bill at the same time. Right. Which later became Congorilla. You had other. You had Tommy yeah, Roe in some of those books too. Actually, Roy Raymond, the TV exactly. detective, we that mentioned was, him earlier. He was, that, he was primarily detective. The way those books were done was they would commission the stories and they would just pile them up on a shelf. And then when it was time to put the issue together, they just pulled. Stuff. So their inventory. They were inventory stories. They were done without logo, interior logos. And when they were signed to the book, the interior logo got slapped on it, which is why, for example occasionally a Superman story would show up drawn by John Forte. What that meant was it was a Lois Lane story that got developed in such a way that Superman was bigger in, was, 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 was bigger in the story, was heavier in the story than Lois. And the, and the balance had sort of shifted. So Mort pulled it off the shelf, looked at it, and said, oh, we'll run it as a Superman story. So he put the Superman logo on it instead of Lois Lane. I got you. And that, Interesting. That, is, that is how all of those books you know, were put together. So Julie was developing these these anthology things. I mean, I, was was developing regular features for the anthology books. Um, some of them were really kind of nutty or forgotten today, such as interplanetary insurance, <laughs> which I just thought was very charming. It could be played for for laughs. So beautiful. I mean, it's basically you know, um, Mars wants a, a policy for you know, Phobos is going to fall out of orbit. And crash into Mars so that people on the Mars colony have to buy an insurance plan. And it, what it was, it was an old radio show called Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. The man with the action-packed you know, expense account, right? The man with the action-packed expense account, so indeed. What's what Julie did was he just took Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar and he put it in space. Well, space, space cabbie, exactly. Space cabbie is the, the you know, king of that stuff. And Star Hawkins. Star Hawkins, indeed. So his experience in developing stuff from the ground up was pretty much in the science fiction books. And his big, his big claim to fame and his big credibility 
in the company was the two smash hits of Strange Adventures and uh, and uh, Mystery in Space. Mystery in Space. Uh, yeah, the idea being that they were just books that were in the right place at the right time. Everything was coming up science fiction and comics throughout the 50s. Uh, so much so that by the end of the decade, you know, as I said, Batman was everything was inside everything was science fiction. And in fact, was Johnny was was I'm sorry, was Captain Comet a backup feature as well? Yeah, around that he was, same period, but I, I don't think he was one of Julie's. Okay, go ahead. I, I recall him as being Murphy Anderson's first one of his first things that was a, an ongoing feature rather than an anthology series. And that was the other. Would that have, it was the other thing. Those t- those books were tremendous breeding grounds for talent. Um, you know, you know, M- Murphy was the illustrator of the Atomic Knights, which was also a very a very big uh, science fiction. Oh yeah. Um, so when it came time to do the superhero stuff. Julie just took the stable of people that he had. Basically, it was two writers, Gardner Fox and John Broom, occasionally Ed Heron, and occasionally Bill Finger, because all of his other writers were the people who were just doing the anthology stories, but weren't really versed in superheroes. The, the writers I just mentioned were the ones who had, had, you know, obviously Gardner Fox created a lot of these characters, so it was basically yes. logical for him to do what, what he did. And, and Broom... I don't recall what it was that, that Julie said made him think that, that, that John could do that. I guess I think Broom was doing other, other regular features with, with uh, recurring characters for other editors. I, I believe Broom wrote a lot of the early Phantom Stranger stories that were done in the early 50s. Okay. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really sure on that. But the other people that he was using were basically science fiction pulp writers. Uh, a guy named Jerry Soule who wrote a, uh, a Star Trek episode. A guy named Man Rubin who later went on to, to write a lot of stuff for, for film, including a, a, a Frank Sinatra movie. Um, Which Frank Sinatra movie? Uh, one of the last two. Uh, either Contract of Cherry oh, for, Street or... Uh, First Deadly Sin? I think it was First Deadly Sin, yeah. Great movie. Yeah. Um, so he, 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 had a, he, was a, he had a great eye for talent. But they were always talent, for the most part, on their way somewhere else. Uh, and, the, <laughs> and, and the people that, that, that uh, Bradbury turned him on to, like William F. Nolan, who later went on to cre- be one of the creators of uh, Logan's Run, as I recall. You bet. Later. Absolutely. Um, so the only people who were sticking around because they were making their living out of comics were guys like Gardner Fox and John Broome. But he had all this talent that had proven itself uh, – very reliable to him on the science fiction books. Now, of course, Gil Kane and Carmen Infantino and Bernie Sachs and all those people uh, did work with him on the westerns as well. Uh, but and you know, uh, and Alex Toth did a few westerns before you know shooting sure. comics. And Hubert Hubert left early on to go over and and, and do the St. John stuff, the tour and everything with Norman Moore. Yes. Um, so he was he was left with guys like Sikowski and Infantino. I don't want to make it sound like you know they were the dregs or whatever. No, but it, they, they were the people that he was working with. Gil Kane, he actually developed his relationship with Gil on Hopalong Cassidy. I had no idea. That's awesome. They inherited that when Fawcett went went out of business in '53. Most of the most of the Fawcett titles went to um, Dell, but a few of them, like the license for Hopalong Cassidy, D- DC got, um, and and. Which was huge in the 50s, obviously. I mean, oh, yeah. that was gold. Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, the, the two real shots in the arm to, to D.C. in the 50s were two companies going out of business. Fawcett, uh, even though they didn't capitalize on the Fawcett characters until another 20 years later when they bought them outright. It was Fawcett and, then, and Quality going out of business. Got a, a yep. Blackhawk. They got one of the war titles. I believe G.I. Combat was, a, was originally a Quality uh, book. A whole bunch of things. And they got the people. They got uh, Chuck Quadera. They got uh, Dick Dillon. Uh, John, I think John Forte had been a quality artist. Uh, 
uh, Kurt Schaffenberger came from Fa- from Fawcett. That was the the thing. Fawcett's contribution was more indirect in in the sense that it freed up talent. Otto Binder, yes, came to DC because Fawcett folded. Another science fiction uh, writer, absolute by the way, for our listeners. Go on, yeah, and and he was comfortable working for Weisinger because Weisinger had bought a lot of stories for him at Standard Pulps in the late. There you go. Uh, the Adam, um, the robot, I robot. Not, yeah, he, he wrote he wrote them with his brother. I think his brother's name was Edgar, and the, the byline was Ian O'Binder. Or yeah, Ian O'Binder. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, Outer Limits did a uh, an adaptation of one of them with uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy playing the robot. I think Asimov's. Uh, yeah, Asimov's Asimov is I Robot, but Ian O'Binder is something out. Adam something. I can't, I'm blanking on it. Anyway. Oh no, but I but I I know that Nimoy did that I Robot and everything. Oh, well, yeah, that, that's... Well, that was I Robot. That was that was Asimov. That wasn't uh, Binder. Hmm. I know that I know that that iRobot was uh, that that was an iRobot uh, and Asimov. I was, I was exposed to all of their stuff. I didn't know any of the backstory. I was just a kid, so it, it tends to, to run together in the mind. Understood. No, amen. one year alone, Otto Binder gave DC the Legion of Superheroes, Elastic Lad, Supergirl, and there was one other thing. Uh, the Legion of Super. Uh, did I mention the Legion? Yeah, you did mention yeah. the Legion. Yeah, the Legion, Elastic Lad, Supergirl. Yeah, in just one year. And what Binder wasn't contributing, Jerry Siegel, who had come back to write for the company, was doing. Jer- Jerry Siegel essentially invented the imaginary tale. Well, and, and also, God, came back in that late 50s period, too, and early 60s, and did um, such wonderful things like uh, the you know uh, when Superman went back to Krypton and right. uh, time-traveled exactly. and, and got to meet Lila Lerrell and be with his parents and stuff. And it's great that it was Jerry Siegel that wrote that story. Well, toward, I mean, toward, toward the end of her life, Joanne was very, very candid, and she certainly was to, uh, to, uh, to, to um, Jerry Jones, uh, about how shabbily uh, Siegel was treated by, uh, by Weisinger. Uh, here, here was this guy who was the creator of, you know, what had given Wart Weisinger his house in Westchester, right? True. And treated him with no special deference or respect whatsoever, except that Siegel was the only person who could sell Weisinger on an idea. Weisinger was one of these people who all his ideas were his own. All the, all the writer's ideas were his. In other words, he fed them. Uh, he would say, no, no, that's not it. Do it this way. There is a story that was told by a lot of his disgruntled writers. It could be apocryphal. I have to put that disclaimer on it. But I've heard it in enough places from enough kinds of people to believe it was probably true. Uh, And stop me if I've told you this before. The Weisinger method. Writer would come in, pitch three or four stories to to Weisinger. Weisinger would reject all of them and give him his own ideas. And the writer would go away and write Mort's ideas. (laughs) The next writer would come in, pitch three or four ideas. Mort would reject them all and give the writer a new idea. And the second writer had no idea that one of the ideas that Weisinger was giving him was the one he rejected from the writer before. God. They never compared notes. They never tumbled wise to it until very, very late in Weisinger's career. The only person who could sell Weisinger on an idea was Siegel. And Weisinger was cranky about it, but it was his perverse way of, I, 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 I hear this. Again, this is all second or third hand, so this could be apocryphal. But... Um, it's worth telling even if it isn't strictly true because it does illustrate an attitude toward the comics and a process. I have been told that it was Siegel who said to Mort, why does it have to be three eight-page stories every issue? Why can't you do two stories? Why can't you do 
a book-length novel was what they called them in those days. Because it's impossible for today's readers to conceive of the fact that in 1958, a single story in Superman that ran throughout the entire book was a novelty. And it was ballyhooed as such. And they were event stories. The, The death of Superman. Yes, the, the imaginary story. Superman's return to Krypton. Some of the things that you're mentioning that we, yep. we remember. Most of those were written by Jerry Siegel, and they were three part stories because Siegel was the only writer who was fast enough to do it. Did he do Superman Red, Blue, Red and Blue? I don't think so. I think Superman Red and Superman Blue was a guy named Robert Bernstein. Okay, and how about the Super Sons? Uh, another book length. Uh... That one I don't know offhand. Um, okay, you know, my knowledge of that only really comes from the. Um, the, you know the reprint editions because unlike Jewel, sure. Jort did not keep strict records, and I, because there's a lot of dispute even the stuff listed in the, in the Grand Comic Book Database. Um, really? Well, yeah, it, and it gets updated when new information surfaces. If a script is found, or fair enough, the daughter or the son of somebody says, "No, actually, so and so didn't write that. My dad did," and. Also, a lot of stuff, there just aren't credits. And no, for example, the ghost stuff that Murray Boltonoff did, no, there were no writer's credits on those books because, oh. because the fiction was, the conceit was, they were true stories. Oh. So, so they, were run, they were run without credits. Well, I did a handful of those right after Leo Dorfman died. Leo was writing most of them. Okay. And it was Leo and Murray himself. And I, people have said that there's somebody in Carl Wessler didn't actually exist. It was a pseudonym for somebody else. I have no idea. I've never met Carl Wessler. And I've never heard anybody say, no, he doesn't exist. But a whole bunch of my stuff was credited to Carl Wessler. And I only noticed it by accident doing some research. I said, That's, that title sounds familiar. Did I write that? And then I looked it up and I, and I had. And, and it's true. When you're, when you're doing all those little short stories – especially for the mystery anthologies, and so many of them are similar themes, you forget what you've written. Sure. I mean, I spent, I spent three days trying to track down a master jailer story, doing some research on the character for somebody that I'd never heard of before. And I, because I had thought it, I, because I had created the character, and I thought it. I, and by the way, am I correct? That, that is the character that's in your retroactive book, One correct? of them, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Um, I, I figured it would, the best, best way to avoid an in, inadvertent, Duplication was something another writer was doing was to limit it to the, the stuff that only I gave it. You know, but so are there other villains that you created that are going to be in the story? Uh, atomic, uh, it's the Atomic Skull. It's the Master Jailer. Sweet. Uh, whole, <laughs> well, the whole point of that is it, it's really it is kind of an homage to a very specific point in the continuity. But but, but in any event, what I was saying was, after two days, I finally realized that the story I was trying to track down that I had never heard of before I wrote and had completely forgotten that I had written. <laughs> you know, so it's a lot of this stuff. A lot of this stuff is, I don't want to say it's specious, but I'm saying it's open to revision as, as new information becomes available, except for Julie, because Julie was the, the anal retentive record keeper. Okay. And he bequeathed, he kept all of his ledger books and bequeathed them to Paul as archival things. And they were in the DC library. So that is why all the uh, credits for Julie's stuff on the reprint books, the collected editions and so on, tend to be very accurate because it's, it's, it's there in black and white in his own handwriting. And this is how we can piece together uh, how the, 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 the superhero has evolved. So Julie felt, all right, we're revisiting a genre that died on us. Mort's doing more and more science fictional stuff in the Superman books, and they're still healthy. Um, 
eh, we don't know so much about Batman, but maybe Batman shouldn't be science fiction, so we'll put that over there somewhere. We won't look at that too much. <laughs> but we have this talent. We have the jet. We have the space age. And I, I think they had the idea for Green Lantern even before uh, Flash, but they never really acted on it, that the idea that Green Lantern would be a, a jet pilot, you know, the jet age, the space age. Well, that I get. Here's my last question about, because you brought up Green Lantern now. The space cop thing. Have we discussed this? Because there's the Lensman and Doc Smith uh, and that wonderful pulp series that happened that essentially really does look a lot like Green Lantern. And I've always heard Julie Schwartz protest to the contrary that it wasn't connected. I can't see how that's almost like living in a, in a, in a world where there's Superman and coming up with Wonder Man, as Will Eisner did, and denying the fact that he was influenced by we, the original. We never discussed that because, quite frankly, I never made that connection until you just mentioned it right now. And it's very obvious. And it's one of those things that you wish you had thought of it and asked the question when the person who knew the, persons who knew the answer were still alive. Um, okay. But as I understood it, um, Green Lantern was, was a case of going back to what we were saying earlier about how, you know, demented and all over the map the original conception was, Julie's saying, take out all of the stuff that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And Broom came back with the idea of the ring, the battery, extraterrestrial energy. And I think it was Julie who developed the whole Guardians of the Galaxy, that whole overlay of the additional thing of the core. But as you, if you look at the, uh, the showcase books and you look at the first couple of issues, you'll see that that's something that they had only the vaguest notion of in the beginning, and they built out from it as they went along. But there clearly was a conception of it in the very first story because of the way Abin Sur bequeaths the ring. To- True. And also, uh, the Guardians had appeared previously in, a, I want to say, a, uh, either Mystery in Space or a showcase story as Guardians of the Clockwork Universe. And that they were kind oh, of shoehorned in. Yes, right. I had forgotten about that. No, I know. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, I don't know that it was in their mind to, to merge the two of them. But that see, that was the other thing when you didn't have the kinds of reprints because back in that day, in the late fifties, they were just starting with the annuals. The first Superman annual was published in 1959, which is crazy. Twenty twenty one years after Superman, somebody's like, "Hey, we got to do an annual." Well, there's a reason. There's a reason for that. Um, the, the first annual wouldn't even have happened. If somebody hadn't discovered a bunch of negatives from old stories that hadn't been destroyed, because one of two things happened with the negatives, and the art was destroyed, because they they didn't foresee any reuse for them. One of two things happened to the negatives. They were either permanently, the English balloons were opaqued out, and then the the, uh, uh, negatives with the whited out balloons were given to the the, uh, foreign publishers, the licensed publishers to publish in different languages, or they were trashed. Wow. Somebody discovered a bunch of negatives, as the story goes, you know, tucked away in the back of a drawer somewhere. And by that point, the stories were five or six years old. And they said, nobody's seen these. You know, maybe we might want to reprint them. And there had been a resistance to doing reprints because, particularly in the Superman books, Mort, knowing what the attrition rate was believed to be of the readership every five or six years, you had a whole new group of readers – Okay. He would recycle stories. If you if you if you sit oh, down, oh sure, yeah, he would take uh, Superman on a on a postage stamp, a commemorative stamp. That story was done uh, in the early fifties. It was done in the late sixties. You know, I mean, he would just recycle. They would literally, in some cases, just take old scripts and only punch them up for technological changes. 
Oh yeah, there's reprints of, uh, yeah. as you say, of, of stuff that clearly was done in the 40s and 50s and then redone in the 60s. Right. And, definitely. And, and Mort was Mort's thinking was that well, if we reprint these stories, we won't be able to do that so much. But they decided, all right, well, let's test it, and they did the annual, and it was great. It was it was huge for them. But for the longest time, the stories were only two or three years old because that was all they had the negatives for. Because what they started to do at that point was they would keep an English version of the negatives to use for the annuals. And it wasn't until they discovered some original uh, – some, some photostatic copies, as they called them in the day, of, of <laughs> stuff from the golden age tucked in a similar sort of way, tucked away in an office or in a warehouse somewhere, that they were able to do the first annual that published stories from the 1940s, which came out in like 1968. And that spurred them on to develop the technology that Jack Adler developed that allowed them to make photostatic copies of old comic books. And what they would do is they would do halftones of the colored pages. That's grayscale. Okay. Right, right. And hire freelance production artists to physically opaque out the gray tones to leave what was essentially a black, what's called black plate reconstruction. Now, of course, in the digital age, to the extent that that's even necessary at all, um, all of that can be done digitally. Now, of okay. course, now, of course, with direct to press, all you really need to do is you, you scan in the old books at a, at a you know, a, a very high DPI and you have, you have the equivalent of, of negatives, color film that you can, you can print from. Sure. But back in, at the time before that technology existed, what they had to do was do that. And that is why it wasn't really until the 70s that you, you saw the explosion of the reprints because they, it wasn't until then that they had the technology to reproduce them. And, and the company shared things with each other. So Marvel was, doing, was, was doing, using the same technique. And there was a whole cottage industry of kids trying to break into the business as artists who were basically living on doing – opaquing art, out art. I don't know how. Wow! I got off on another tangent, and it is five thirty. Uh, but the question—I don't. Did I answer your question? I no, you did. And, and no, as far as the Lensman and Green Lantern, and I appreciate I, I that. And honestly, that the, very quickly—is there—is—is there a comp- how complete of the early years is the is the DC archive? I mean, you know, with everything from photostats and what they're currently doing. Like, is there a, is there a really like unfortunately that early period where only a handful of things still survive? Um, no, I mean, I think what hasn't been reprinted at this point has been uh, more a matter of choice, um, uh, market research, feeling that there wasn't a market to support it. DC has developed very good relationships with collectors. Uh, Steve Geppi has been an enormous help to the DC Collected Editions Department lo- loaning copies. Um, and every, every few years you hear about, you know, well, DC's developed a relationship with this new guy who has every single thing the company's ever published. Um, the library is unfortunately, at least it was as of six years ago, I, don't, I, I can't speak to where it is now, was deficient in a lot of ways for the simple reason that back in the day when they first started to do this black plate reconstruction thing, they would go to the bound volumes in the library and cut stories out. So there, DC did not have, and, and nobody knew what happened to the books. They weren't, they weren't rebound or they weren't. They weren't put back. Oh, in I see. Shape or form. Okay. So, but so the material exists, but the physical books might not. And or, and nowadays, if you're shooting directly from the books, that's that's where the reprint process starts. So sometimes um, you have to loan or buy copies of things to produce a recreation, and that factors into the decision as to whether it's cost effective or not. 
Understood. But like even, let's say, Detective Comics pre-Batman. So those first 26 issues of Detective, they've got all they've got all 26. Um, They should. I mean, if they're, you know, because you're talking about stuff where because they're bound and they're not they're not kept in acid free. uh, Right. Right. the, The pages are kind of brittle. And the very earliest bound books were spiral bound. Right, so I've heard about that. You can't really get them to lie flat, and you can't you can't get bound books to lie flat on a scanner. So the the, the way to optimally reproduce things for 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 reprinting is to buy or borrow flat copies, and that's why even when they do have the stuff uh, that's bound, they prefer to go that route, or at least as I say, they did when I the last time I was there. Um, they've been building up a film library. See, that's the thing; they don't. Unlike the old DC, they don't throw anything away anymore. Everything is all, digit- sure. all digitized. So uh, the, the, all of the reprint editions uh, are considered, you know, the creation of the film for those is an investment for the future. I think they decided that it was more cost-effective and it wasn't a negative to do uh, the showcase stuff in black and white. But any of that stuff, if, as long as the black plate exists, they can just hire somebody to, to do the color. What, okay. what it will be interesting to do, to see is whether they, if they do that, if they choose to try to use Photoshop color, or if they try to sure. mimic the flat color fill of the of the original books. It's it, this whole, that's one of the things that's so interesting to me about this about this whole retroactive thing is it's they're they're hearkening back to an earlier era, but they're doing it in, in, in a modern style physically. So I'm I'm wondering what they're what are they what what are they testing? What waters are they testing? What will they do next? I'm I'm certainly hoping that the retroactive books. Uh, are successful enough that that becomes a brand that they visit going forward as a, an alternative kind of continuity, because there's a lot of stuff you just can't do today because of the continuity changes. That if you you know if you have that separate branding, you you would be able to do. I understand. Well, I will now afford you the opportunity of disengaging because you have you've been very kind with your time. <laughs> so today. so of you, uh, yeah. No, no. Hey, Marty, it's a pleasure. You know that. Well, I think you know by now. We, I think we both enjoy each other's company enough that Absolutely. we can't go on I this thank long. Thank you, John. I hope you get enough stuff out of this to get a couple of podcasts out of it. <laughs> I think you can count on it. There you go, Marty Pasco. I urge you to go through the archive and listen to uh, other conversations I had with uh, Marty going back to uh, either 2006 or 2007, all the way up to uh, 2017. Um, as I said in uh, the first part of this conversation, I really tried hard to get Marty back in the last couple of years, but he was moving a lot and uh, had a couple bad uh, health uh, issues well before the coronavirus. They say he died of natural causes, so I'm assuming that it wasn't virus-related, but um, I, I know that he had some tough health issues the last couple of years, too, and uh, I hope that uh, whatever misery Marty might have been suffering, he's at peace now. And uh, we've, he's left behind a lot of friends that are really sad to see him go. So thanks for all the great talks, Marty. Um, until next time, um, I'll, uh, we'll have uh, uh, happier conversations uh, in the days ahead here at Word Balloon. And um, until then, I, I really appreciate you listening. And as always, I appreciate the attention and the support that uh, Word Balloon gets from all of you listeners. So thank you. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2020. Stay safe. Stay healthy.